0: here and again we are sans andy andy's in the background playing controls and flipping all the the switches and gadgets back there for us still but um he said say hi to all the listeners and everyone but hopefully we'll have him back soon once uh the world sort of settles down because some of us end up staying home and some of us end up working double time and that is andy so you're stuck with me for quite some time it seems but um Before we get into episode 14 here this week, uh, I did want to just quickly throw out a reminder for everybody uh, that is involved in reptile keeping to support USARC. If you are not a member, go become a member. You can sort of uh, pick your poison as far as how much money you commit to them every year. It can be a one lump sum for an annual thing 20 bucks, 40 bucks, 50 bucks, $5 a month, whatever you want to do. And it goes a long way. Imagine if millions of people do just $5 a month and that all goes towards paying for all the legal work they do for us right now uh, and in the future and everything that's going on in Florida, which you've probably heard over and over again. So we're not going to get into that. But just a reminder, we really depend on USARC success and what they do. So uh, the the least that we can do is support them and become a member and uh, stay educated as well. The last thing I wanted to mention is um, our friend Ari Flagle. Uh You've heard him on Morelia Python radio plenty of times. Uh, you've probably read his book, Serpent in the Clouds. Um, his first one, which was, uh, I think, just Project Black Python. I don't know, Black Python or The Black Python, something like that. Um, and he's sort of been leading the charge on Boland's Python research. But the folks that are his friends and family out there in PNG... Um, have very limited access to food, healthcare, and things like that. And they're currently um, battling some challenges related to COVID-19. So he's been putting out these wonderful face masks where all the money will go to uh, help them get some food supplies and medical supplies so they can uh, stay healthy out there. Some of the the really remote areas of the world tend to get hit hardest by these viruses and diseases and whatnot due to lack of infrastructure and access to medical care so um, fortunately at this point Ari's first run of masks are all sold out which is a great problem but the good news is he's doing a second run that's coming soon so uh, definitely keep your eyes peeled for that and you can reach out to him and buy multiple and it's all for a good cause and we're definitely going to be wearing masks for a while so um, no reason to you know have a good stash of them but anyway definitely keep your eyes peeled for the second run of that and in the meantime go check out his website at www.projectblackpython.org All right, got that out of the way. We're going to get right to this. Um, we've been been chit-chatting here before we started recording, but um, I'm here with a good friend, Joe Fellon from, from the ground up, Port City Pythons, Port City Pets. You guys probably know him. He's got a great show going long-term, running way longer than mine, and uh, just really doing a lot of cool things. So, Joe, how's it going, man?
1: Good, Riley. Ghost of Andy. Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> Ghost of Andy whispered to me right here. Said, "Tell him I said hi. Tell him I said thank you." So, and and he's out now. He's got to go take care of the dogs and the kids. So, but yeah, uh, yeah, he's he's busy, dude. So, but we'll get him back one of these days. In the meantime, I keep hitting him up and saying, "Hey, I know you work a lot, but on the off chance we're going to record, are you available?" He's like, "No, I'm not. I'm sorry, dude." So it is what it is. We'll keep pushing along and we'll keep his name attached to everything because he does do a lot of the key editing and helps me with getting this stuff out on time. So he's definitely still involved. Um, so one of these days we'll have him back on. But yeah.
1: Isn't this like the fun part and the easy part? Wouldn't you rather just sit here and talk about snakes? And yeah, can but... Mess
0: I do feel bad. I feel like uh, I should learn, you know, all the stuff. He showed me once we did like one of the whole screen share things where he took over my computer and showed me how he did it. And I saw it and it made sense then and then I forgot it. And so now I need to be shown again. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it goes. Yeah. So, but uh, how, how how are things going? How's your season?
1: great man uh there's a lot of a lot of things going around or going on at this time of the year this is the exact time in which everything is hatching at the same time it seems like since colubrid's go into brumation they come out all at the same time they tend to cycle within a month window and then you just have a crazy month everything's hatching at the same time and i'm almost to the end of it oh so how
0: many i mean how many clutches did you shoot for this year Are you swimming in babies right now?
1: Yes, but I really didn't have as successful of and not as good of a hatch rate as I had hoped um, initially. But that's not really a big deal because honestly, it's more than enough to keep me busy. I'm not sure exactly how many clutches, but I usually go between like 12 and 15, which uh, it's not really it's not really that much. But for one person, the way that I do things and I don't make things easy on myself as far as husbandry goes uh, it could be quite a handful.
0: Yeah. I mean, a dozen clutches, even if they're only 10, eight clutches, that's still 120 babies.
1: And I do. Oh, yeah. I'll be close to 150 probably by the end, by the end of the season, but somewhere between 120 and 150. But I thought initially, I thought my initial numbers were about 200, but I had missed on some clutches. But, you know, and that's kind of how that goes. But I also, as far as babies go, I I put everyone in their separate Tupperware and then I give them, you know, a couple inches of substrate and a hide. And that just, you know, gives you a lot of extra maintenance when really most people just put them on paper without any hide or anything like that. So uh, it can be a little bit of a pain. Well, yeah, I guess
0: both styles have their pros and cons. Like if if an animal soils paper and it bleeds through and soaks the whole thing, you got to change the whole thing whereas if bedding you can quick spot clean most of the time and just every once in a while do a full bedding swap. So there's definitely pros and cons depending on the species and, you know, how much time one method will save you or the other versus cost. So but either way you cut it 120 to 200 babies is a
1: lot. <laughs> For some reason, I don't know if something intentional, but uh, babies tend to take the substrate, put it all in the water bowl, and then take the hide, put it over the water bowl. Just enough for it to kind of soak up and, you know, mold over if you leave it for too long. So, yeah, yeah, those little bastards.
0: Yeah, they do that, dude. They like to poop in inconvenient spots, make messes that sort of seem uh, almost impossible or at least – calculated and intentional and quite spiteful. Um, they're sort of like the sour patch kids of the snakes, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they get a little bit better once they're older, but not, not always. Um, but yeah, so, so it sounds like you're, you know, you've got your process dialed in since moving to Philly and I know we'll get into this in a little bit, but, um, you know, I definitely wanted to sort of talk corn snakes more than anything but I know there's a lot of various species that you keep and are interested in that sort of can lend some insight into just how to really feel out different species like this in general so I was hoping we'll we'll sort of elaborate and get into some of those but as far as corn snakes go how did you start out with them and and what at what point did you sort of go down and commit to that that species being your bread and butter. I know you do a lot of other things, but at what point, you know, I mean, maybe it wasn't conscious. Maybe that's just how it worked out, but sort of how did that evolve?
1: So growing up, actually, my dad had snakes. It was primarily Burmese. You know, he had a Burmese Python back in the day, as well as a boa. And he had gotten back into it after getting out in like the seventies or eighties when I was a kid. So probably late nineties or so. And we used to go to the White Plains show. Um, Probably, I mean, that's probably just really when it started and really when reptile shows started in general. But we had gotten a corn snake as a pet. And this is, I'm talking first grade or so. And then I actually brought that corn snake for show and tell when I was a little kid. So I've had corn snakes. And then I've had another one um, after that, probably about fourth or fifth grade. And then I had one in middle school actually – His name was Tony, and he just passed away literally like a week and a half ago, which is a shame, but it sucks. But, you know, what more can you ask from a snake that you had when you were a kid? You didn't exactly know everything, you know, that there was to know. As well as, you know, I went through college and stuff like that, and it wasn't exactly, you know, a straightforward path as far as his husbandry and things like that. So uh, he definitely gave me a good, you know – 16 17 years or so
0: that's solid man that's a really that's a really good life lifespan right there for sure
1: yeah I think that if I had started if I start with an animal now I want to believe that I can get an animal to 30 years sure um, at least yeah. that's what I've heard of people that's like the very upper range of what I've heard a, a corn snake can live to of course in the wild studies will tell you they live about you know, six to eight years (laughs) in in captivity, uh, I can imagine. And I've heard of people having corsakes up to 30 years. So that's why it's kind of, it's a little disappointing, but I mean, it happens 16, 17 years a lot for really, you know, any snake.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've got a gopher snake that I work with, um, who was a wild caught animal 22 years ago as an adult. He's, you know, got to be at least you know, 25, 26 years old and he's been through like cancer and had masses removed and everything. So I don't, I don't think that it's out of the realm of possibilities that a lot of colubrids could get to their mid to late twenties, if not 30. I mean, you know, I've got a ball python at work that's pushing 40 and he's got liver disease and bad eyes and stuff, but he's still kicking. So, you know, there's always, yeah, I
1: believe, I believe there was a ball python. Was it Staten Island Zoo? Like, one of the first ball pythons that was ever bred lived well into its 40s.
0: Oh, yeah. I've I've seen several individuals at zoos that, you know, 42, 44, like, going on. They have some age-related things like cataracts and whatnot. But otherwise, yeah, they can they can live quite some time if they're done, you know, kind of slow and steady. So, um, and I feel like uh, because breeds they uh, they go down for a winter. They kind of give their organs a break for a few months, which you know has to work beneficially towards longevity. Uh, if you're giving your biology a rest, you know, part of the year. So,
1: yeah, one hundred percent. And keep in mind, Tony, I had him, and his full name's Tony Bag of Donuts, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I had him when I was younger, so I wasn't brooming him or doing any of that stuff. He uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so only really for one or two years did he ever brewmate. Well, yeah, that's
0: still a pretty good number considering most people, you know, struggle to get animals into double digits these days. So
1: Yeah, that's for yeah. sure.
0: Yeah. So um so those are your so corn snakes are sort of your MO, everybody knows you know that's what you specialize in you really sort of have almost like uh made that your niche but at the same time you've recently and i i say recently as in like the last maybe you know two three years because you've never just been a one species guy but you've also started diving into can you hear my african bullfrog croaking in the
1: background <laughs> yeah i did just hear that <laughs>
0: <laughs> dude, dude is a year and a half old. He's like nine to ten inches long, and all of a sudden, he's found his vocal cords. And it's always when I'm in here trying to record.
1: <laughs> is he trying to reach out to amphibian Tinder or something?
0: Oh, dude, he's all about swiping left.
1: <laughs> it's it's right, buddy.
0: Ah, uh, whatever. Whichever direction it goes. If there's a rat, a photo, <laughs> and a and a pretty bullfrog, he's all about swiping whichever direction gets him there. So,
1: yeah, I'm um, a pro now.
0: oh gosh i we're gonna pretend that segment (laughs) wasn't that yeah edit out andy yeah andy (laughs) if you're listening this is a great one um but so you 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 do a lot of like eastern black kings and you've got some northern pines if i'm not mistaken um corns gray rats um I mean, what else, what else do you keep? You keep a lot of really cool colybrids.
1: Yeah, so I guess I should, pr- I should go back a little bit, meaning like breeding-wise, I started seven years ago. And predominantly, the first animal I bred was actually a ball python. So I did have a little bit of a, a misstep. I was caught in an entanglement, if you will.
0: Hey, I did the same thing, man. That was my first foray into producing my own offspring was uh, the royals.
1: Yeah, don't put lipstick on a pig, but... Yeah. Ball python. (laughs) I'm just kidding. They're cool. (laughs) Eh, Sort of. But yeah, so I had started there, although I had corn snakes during that time and I had bred corn snakes actually for the first time about six years ago or so. But uh, yeah, I started getting into especially when I had been hit with some ball python Nido virus type of stuff going on there. uh, I really decided, hey. I don't want to just have these animals in which it seems like oh pretty colors this is nice. I want to get some animals that are a little bit rarer, a little bit harder to keep, a little bit more of a challenge, and something that is really giving back to the hobby. So uh, you said northern pine snakes, but I I want northern pine snakes. But what I have is Louisiana pine snakes, you up as Ruth and I. Okay. So so that was really one of the animals in which uh, at the time. The black pine actually just got listed as federally endangered. And I knew that the next thing that was going to be federally endangered was going to be the Louisiana pine, because that is technically more rare actually than the black pine and considered the rarest snake in North America. So I was like, this is a great opportunity for me to pick up a snake in which not a lot of people have. Mm-hmm. And I can make a dent, you know, in this little side of the hobby and maybe educate people about you know, the perils of the longleaf pine forest and deforestation and fragmentation of their habitat. And so I decided to pick up a pair. It took me, you know, probably took me two years to find a pair. I started off, I found one male. So I was like, cool, picked up that male. And then I found another male. And then finally, you know, a year later after I picked up that male, I found my female. And females take four years to grow up. So a lot of people try Louisiana pine snakes at three years, but everyone that I've talked to four years, regardless of size. And that was also true for me. So actually I just had my second clutch of Louisiana pine snakes. I just had them hatch out today. So I'm super pumped about that. So that's probably why I'm rambling on about them.
0: Oh dude, that's so
1: exciting. And they are psychos. Like, Most of the the Louisiana pine steaks I I only got so part of why they're so rare in the wild is the fact that they have really small clutch sizes, but they may have babies, right? Yeah, yeah. They have small clutch sizes, but the eggs are like, you know, I'm holding my Galaxy S9 Plus and they're as wide as this, maybe almost as wide as a dollar bill, or long rather. So they are super long, weird eggs. And this year I got four of them. And the babies come out slamming like small mice. It's insane. And you
0: you had a, a like a little video clip of one in your Instagram story today, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's a that's a female that literally just came out of the egg. That thing and is I the size keep of, my hands off of it.
0: That thing is the size of my 10-month-old Madagascar giant hog nose <laughs> baby.
1: <laughs> it is like it's hatching out like a full snake. You know, like I'm so used to hatching out ball pythons or or sorry, not ball pythons, like hatching out kink snakes or corn snakes. And it's like that is a little worm creature that's super fragile. And then here with the pine snake, you hatch out like A full snake man it's nice and it doesn't feel as fragile and trust me they don't act really you know they're rather defensive but this animal was super super good out of the egg so i was so excited man i may i may go up and go handle it tonight i mean that's really not the thing you should do but i don't know
0: you're snakes who cares
1: yeah yeah but it was cool she had like a giant belly full of yolk and uh then and they all eat they eat rodents pretty readily, you know, off the bat, which is more than I can say for a lot of the other colubrids that I breed. So they're just kind of a pleasure all around.
0: Yeah, that that's a really cool species that um, I'm glad you brought up the, the longleaf pine habitat. Um, they're definitely an indicator species of a healthy ecosystem out there, much like, you know, gopher tortoises and indigos and things like that and similar habitat out there. So that's really cool that you that you are having success with that because that's one of those species that zoos and uh, the SSP in, involved manages as well. So um, that's really neat to see that they're alive and well, and there's a lot of initiative in the in you know the private keeping as well. Uh, yeah,
1: so there's a, there's a lot of zoos having success, at least a, a couple of zoos in particular, and mm-hmm. and they're actually releasing babies. And I think they released yeah. something like forty babies last year, or something like yeah. that, which is super exciting. And it's really cool to see that, you know, they're, they're having success on that end, because obviously, as a private keeper, I can't really do anything for conservation, besides talk on this podcast and try to educate people about what's going on with them, right, which I think, you know, is something that is, you know, it's worth something. And I'm also going to be taking the babies, and I'm going to be sending them to friends in which have, you know more reach than I do, so I'm going to be sending off a female to to Zach Lofman, who's a herpetologist at uh, Western Liberty University. So he's going to be uh, not only is he pairing up a different unrelated male for for this female that I'm going to be sending him, but he's also doing different tests as far as husbandry and behavior goes. Um, you know, they're going to a legit lab in which we're going to learn more about the species, which I'm super super excited about. As well as I'm going to send, you know, a couple babies to some social media influencers in which they can just educate people. And they can literally get millions of eyes on this animal in which no one knows exists. And, uh, and I think that that's, you know, I'm excited about it.
0: That's huge. Yeah, that's a huge. You're really... I mean, you said you're not sure how much you can do for conservation, but then you go on this like little spiel about all these things that are going to do a lot for conservation. I think, um, putting animals in front of people is probably one of the, the biggest first steps towards getting any further conservation initiatives going, getting people even talking about them or thinking about them. If they don't know they exist, and they don't see one. It doesn't go further than that. So, um, You know, zoos are doing their thing, they're keeping a population going, they're spreading them out, and they're probably managing diverse genetics as far as how those programs work. And and then if there's a private sort of sector aspect of it, that's even better because you've got two separate worlds of bloodlines that won't cross, you know, more or less, but you've got people going for the same goal and the same initiative and it's only getting better. So if the fact that there's a zoo or two releasing some out in the wild and all that, that's, that's really cool. So, um, I think, I think that's a really interesting point to bring up too, is like, you know, we all have our bread and butter species we keep, but then there should always be like that one sort of, uh, obscure species that we love. That's very unique and unheard of that, Most people don't know about just to, you know, sort of keep something alive for the sake of the hobby. And and if not for their animal species, sort of cousins out in the wild, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, everyone can have, you know, a pair of forcing tortoises or whatever, or a pair of, you know, some animal that's imperiled. It it may be available in the hobby in small numbers, but is imperiled out in the wild. And then you can just educate people about them. And and I I think the big thing with the Louisiana Pines is that it doesn't matter – if we're reproducing them, if zoos are reproducing them, if there's no longleaf pine forest and habitat for them to live in, you know, the the people in that area need to get educated in which, you know, we need to preserve these forests over building a Starbucks or an apartment complex or something like that. Sure.
0: Well, and one of the, one of the biggest challenges with conservation is getting local buy-in that local buy-in is, is the, the key to success long-term. If you are doing something overseas or, domestically if you don't have the local community villagers members wherever um like fully committed and involved once you pull out of there and try to like leave it and let it do its thing and become sustainable it falls short because you haven't gotten the community support and investment in it and that's the only way these types of initiatives survive um so it's absolutely instrumental so yeah i mean you can you could produce thousands of whatever species you want, but if you don't have sustainable habitat and you don't have community support and federal protection or government protection in some level, it, it can just, you know, be for naught almost. Um, you just sort of have this like arc of animals that isn't doing anything. So,
1: yeah, and it's super cool. I'm actually a part of this Facebook group online, it's a long leaf. Uh, Pine Forest Ecosystem Facebook group. And you're seeing people in Louisiana in which, like, you know, these people are legitimate. Some of these people, Cajuns living off the land, right? So they didn't know until recently, you know, how important this ecosystem is and how to preserve it, you know, how to give people access to do control burns on their property and stuff like that. And you're seeing just on this Facebook group people interacting and pretty much you know, the information is being spread on how important this is and it's cool to see everyone work together and you're seeing people who wouldn't normally be involved in conservation, you know, paying attention.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, all of those are completely crucial to success. And the nice thing is we now have, you know, a lot more global interconnectivity as far as our access to it and you know, everybody around the world being able to see it. So we can really do a lot more with, with our voice, with our YouTube channels, with our podcasts, with our social media, like as much as it, you know, has the, the very opposite effect. Sometimes it can be quite toxic and hostile. It, it can also make some pretty big differences globally. So,
1: yeah. And I just want to, just cause I like to mention this about how bad ass Louisiana pine snakes are like, these are not constrictors they have a giant rostral scale in which they can burrow and they live in, you know, usually they take over gopher um, or pocket gopher dens and they are going into these burrows of the pocket gopher. And then they're biting, you know, the, the female and then crushing all the other ones across with their giant keeled scales and, just taking down a whole family of pocket gophers and eating them all at the, at the same time, like really, really fast. And it's a really, really badass animal. Like it's not an animal in which you're going to put a, a mouse in there and they're going to, they're going to constrict it. They're kind of weirdly shy, but they also, I don't know, like I opened the bin a little bit and I put a mouse in there and one of them just takes it and grabs it and goes to the back of the tub, like as soon as possible. Like they want nothing to do with you. They're super, super shy, but they're they're little killers.
0: Are they like bull snakes where they will drive through the, the road and smash it into the ground and the wall and like crush it and eat it.
1: Yeah, they'll typically, and I've done it in which I only fed live once cause he was brutal. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he basically just overpowered. He just put it in his mouth and for one second he used part of his body to kind of smash it against the wall of the enclosure and then basically just ate it whole like living kicking down the, down its mouth it was pretty brutal kind of like i've i fed a hog nose live i shouldn't ever do that again cuz that was also brutal they literally <laughs> you know they don't constrict anything they're yeah, little, they little soft snakes yeah and this thing is just living and it's being eaten it's pretty brutal yeah,
0: yeah, we had a we had a big uh, like six foot male bull snake at work, and I would give him frozen thawed small rats, and he would grab it, run to the back, smash it into the wall, and all <laughs> in one motion slap me with his tail. Like
1: yes, yeah, like they will start rattling, and they will defend their food once they have it. Uh, yeah. They generally not really all of mine, and I know some people with some really really calm Ruth and I. Mm -hmm. but mine are very very defensive and they do you know they do kind of have a classic rattlesnake pose to them they'll they'll rattle their tail as well as they will s up and kind of get vertical like you would see a rattlesnake get and it's you know it's super super intimidating super cool and then they actually have like a glottis in which it acts like almost like a vocal cord so they can they can actually push air and manipulate the air to get louder and like my adult my adult male you can hear him upstairs you can hear him all throughout the house like it is like audible very very audible it's super super cool super intimidating and you can see like you know how they've evolved to survive all these years
0: oh yeah I I used to love watching any sort of pituhovas of crack the side of their mouth and just freaking growl at you. <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's the best. My my crebos they don't growl, but they definitely are very vocal in it and it reminds me a lot of the uh the of stuff like that. So
1: Yeah, uh, it's almost like they have and like the pituhovas of in particular, it's almost like they have like gravel in their in their throats. It's yeah, it's incredible.
0: It, it sounds very very guttural, very like it just brutal <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, somebody needs to record that and sample that for a metal album <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah for sure
0: okay so you, so you've got you got louisiana pines slavinsky's you've got your corns you've got um you've got your various king snakes Does that kind of cover the spread or or where are you at collection wise
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I have, you know, I have Morelia, I have an olive python, I have a water python, I have a green tree python. I also have, I just picked up some fox snakes.
0: Oh, I love fox snakes.
1: Yes, so pretty much everything I love about rat snakes and everything I love about pituophis, they mashed it together into one and made a fox snake.
0: And then they're, like, really chill, which is great
1: yeah I mean my 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 little guys are a little they're a little antsy in their pantsies. but yeah that's
0: babies though in my experience as adults they're some of the best
1: yeah I'm super excited to get there so these are westerns they're Nebraska I believe it's Washington county Nebraska locale okay. but I'm waiting for I'm waiting for my buddy Chris at dark Horse uh her pediculture to get easterns oh. but they are they're super these fox snakes in particular you need to get them down apparently to 40 degrees or so they need to be colder than your normal colubrids Mm -hmm. and they're pretty difficult to breed in captivity
0: yeah i've worked with one one time and she was like the most placid animal ever um just, just super unique yeah i'll i'll always have a an appreciation and a soft spot for those animals i hope you know one day i have the space to the flexibility that allows me to keep something sort of off the beaten path like that. There's such cool snakes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then I have, I also have some Brooks eyes, some, okay, some Brooks king snakes yeah, or yeah. Florida king snakes, depends who you're talking to. And yeah, so I, I'm growing up a group of those. I produced those last year. This year I taken a year off because unfortunately the female died actually uh, just a few weeks after laying just randomly passed away, oh. which I was super bummed about.
0: Oh, I'm sorry to hear that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what happens when you're breeding animals, right?
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, even sometimes when you're not breeding animals, when it yeah. comes to reptiles, like, you know, we throw the the medical book that's been written as far as our experience with mammals and, and people at them and trying to extrapolate the best we can. And, you know, there are some vets that do it really well and some vets that, you know, try their best, but like sometimes medicine just isn't there. And uh, that's just kind of the unfortunate side effect of it. So, but yeah, the worst thing you can do to your animals, try and breed it as they say, just because of the complications <laughs> that comes with it. But you know, that's why we're, why we're doing it. So
1: yeah, 100%. I mean, you're, you're taking a risk, but I'm, I'm trying to think of what other animals. So I, I have like Eastern, I have some uh, Eastern rat snakes in particular. I have an Everglades rat snake. No, those are great. Oh, and this, this animal is like super, super red. And I think the, the coolest thing is that people people really like ontogenetic color changes, but they don't really give any credit to any rat snakes, corn snakes, any of the colubrids for doing it. But I mean, this thing started off like slate gray, just like normal drab animal. And it's now like super orange red, like, and a really, really cool looking. And then they also go from, you know, uh, usually yellows in particular, they go from this normal pattern in which you see in a bunch of rat snakes, uh, like you may see in a corn snake, and then they turn striped. And it's yeah. like, what the hell? Their their pattern is changing. Not only does their yeah. color get drastically different, but their pattern changes. Like, where else does that happen?
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. I've seen some a few years ago. A, a a local guy used to breed something. He would breed, like, I don't know, hypos or albinos or something. Yeah, and it was it was crazy to see them develop that stripe. So.
1: Yeah, and then I have some I have some westerns as well. So I have a, a rusty or a het leucistic uh, western rat snake, also known Texas rat snake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I have a leucistic female. Who uh, man, I I love this snake. But yeah, those are beautiful. Oh yeah, and she's like actually calm. The male absolute psycho. But I've really worked <laughs> on on getting on getting her calmed down. Uh, Texas and western rats are known for being a little little honery. Yeah man do i do i love that that leucistic female and you know that's that's another snake that now that there's you know there's leucism in so many different snakes it's really not as big of a deal as it used to be but that was really one of the first leucistic snakes in general and uh, I, I still i still love that snake and uh yeah it's a super super cool snake and i don't know if if people there's there's a lot of people now who don't realize that taxonomy shifting all the time, especially with these rat snakes. And, and we're, we're still calling, you know, Everglades, Everglades, blacks, blacks, but unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you see it, you know, the, the black rat snakes, which are going to be in the, you know, the Northern half of the Eastern United States and the Everglades rat snakes, which are going to be in the Everglades in Florida and the yellow rat snakes, which kind of range, you know, in between those two, they are all just Eastern rat snakes, man. You know, that the genetic testing has been done, and they're all the same exact thing with drastically, drastically different phenotypes. And then you have you have black rat snakes that are black phenotype that are actually western. So phenotype means nothing to a rat snake, and that is hella confusing. Wow. Doesn't make sense. And then I also have uh, I have gray rat snakes, also known as the midlands rat snakes, which exist in between the westerns and the and the easterns, and there's uh, gray rat snakes are pretty down the middle. They're all pretty much gray, so that's that's really one of the the only ones that that makes sense. But if you get in the northern part of the range, you may get some black individuals. It's it's silly. I don't know. I'm not I'm not a uh, scientist.
0: Would you equate that to sort of what's going on between like the potential reclassification of like jungles, coastals, and diamonds?
1: I think more and more we are realizing that phenotype is leading us astray in comparison to, you know, the actual I guess you would call it GN or DNA or genetics in the animal.
0: But we we definitely know that diamond pythons reproduce at different times of the year and require different environmental conditions in order to get to that point. Is that not a limiting factor within a the species then? Like is that the same for all those rat snakes, even though they might look different in those areas, do, is their husbandry different? Is the reproductive requirements different? And it, is that enough to quantify some level of genetic differentiation?
1: Well, I suppose the problem is that there's no there's no set rules to this, right? So there's not even there's not even a set rule to how much genetic um, like variability is okay. Is it you know two percent different? or 0.6% different, like what there's no guideline, there's no official guidelines. So it is kind of a, a judgment call. Hmm. Interesting. And I don't know, man. Uh, so, so yeah, there's, there's plenty of factors that go beyond maybe, you know, the genetic testing that's been done or say phenotype and stuff like that. There's, you know, like you said, reproduction and and different husbandry requirements and these animals are maybe even in, in different niches in, in where they're at, as far as a black rat snake compared to an Everglades rat snake, I'm sure their life is much different. They probably behave much different in the wild. Um, yeah. Is that my call to know what's what? No, I just, I just go with whatever's accepted at the time. Cause I am not educated enough to, to have really an opinion, you know? Sure.
0: That's oh, interesting. Maybe we're just in the middle of their, their, you know, evolutionary distinction in like, you know, somewhere along their trajectory, they're working towards be, becoming divided and we just happen to exist while the DNA still shows the same thing, but they're still slowly making their split. Who knows?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's always a work in progress, right?
0: Yeah. That's science for you for sure. <laughs> so um. All right. So as far as your approach to to keeping uh, corn snakes in particular, but I'm sure a lot of it does apply across the board to some of these species.
1: Sorry, I got us off the rails rather quickly, didn't I?
0: No, that's cool, man. I really enjoy getting <laughs> onto the, the various species because you, you learn so much regionally about the species that exist in those areas. And so when you talk about an animal that overlaps with, you know, all these other species, even though you might be talking about that animal, what you're sort of pulling out of that information wise is, is like habitat and environmental information that's still applicable and sort of, it's just like having an outside perspective. So I love learning about a lot of the crossover and things like that because they're just, they are different, but at the same time they give you an insight into that, that sort of, spot of the world i suppose um and it's still relevant of course
1: yeah and i'm one of those people that for whatever reason i tend to like the natural history of the animals probably just as much if not more than the actual breeding and captive husbandry i mean it's pretty equal as far as you know i'm just as interested in in the natural history
0: yeah i mean you have to really fully enjoy that animal if you're going to keep it that long otherwise you're going to get bored
1: yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the big thing about having – I know some people can have one species and do it, but you need to go so deep as far as your knowledge in that species, I feel like, to kind of quench your thirst of, you know, progress. And, you know, we all want to be progressing in what we keep and our knowledge in reptiles and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, hats off to the guys who uh, – guys and gals who um... – focus on one species specifically. And that's all their population or collection consists of like, because they're so laser focused on that. They're going to make advances in understanding those animals regardless. So that's really cool. But I am one of those people who cannot do that. I need variety. I need differentiation for sure. So, but I, I, yeah, so you already know, but I'm, so I'll, uh, I'll throw it out there. I've done this whole reptile keeping thing backwards over my years. I started with a California King snake, then had, you know, various, like, I think my brother had leopard geckos and bearded dragons and stuff. So we had all that in the house. And then I went into rainbow boas, Kribos, pythons and everything. And, and I completely skipped like chapters two through 12. <laughs> on like snake keeping progression learning like going up the ladder. Not that you know anything is necessarily basic in in sort of like a, a quality way, but I never ever kept a corn snake until like a month ago, and now I'm like really curious and really fascinated by them. And I've I've paid enough attention to the hobby over the years to know how people approach keeping them, and they do seem pretty tolerant of a lot of things, but I was hoping you could sort of walk through um, your approach to proper husbandry for them, as far as how you house them at different stages of life, how you approach their feeding, the their, their bedding, their, just kind of the overall environmental parameters that you give for them. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of folks out there that have them dialed in and whatnot, and, and I'm not one of them. Um, so, you know, Maybe maybe give us a a window into your head as far as how you operate with your your corn snakes.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to mention the fact that, you know, you said that you did it backwards. And of course, that means that corn snakes are typically like the best first pet snake. And I despite despite what people say about the size and stuff like that, I understand. But for the animal itself, if you want something that's going to survive, it's going to be a corn snake because they're just so, so hardy. But that that being said, there are some parameters in order to make sure that you're giving the animal an ideal life. And I, since I have a large collection, I do, you know, what people would call the Terry Phillip method. So what that is, is, you know, running ambient temperatures. And typically my ambient temperatures are 80 to 82 degrees. Now, if you're keeping one corn snake, and I, I honestly don't recommend that, I would rather you keep, you know, something... Uh, an enclosure with an 85 degree hot spot. I, I don't like going much higher than that, but that is just enough temperature to make sure that at least a young animal will digest. An adult will pretty much digest anything at any temperature, but a baby, you really want to make sure you have that heat. And then just regular room temperature on the on the other side uh, for your ambient heat. And then other than that, and that's it doesn't matter if it's belly heat, you know, overhead lighting, I think that that's a common misconception. I don't think I don't think really any snakes need belly heat. I think we've proven that over and over again. I mean, I don't know. Maybe if the sun's beating on a rock and they go sit on a rock, they're getting belly heat, but I don't know. I, I see more and more modern keepers keeping, you know, things with UV bulbs. And right now I'm working with like deep heat projection and stuff for, for some animals, but I should probably stop rambling about heat. And Substrate, I think, is super, super important, especially for for babies. Babies are going to be super flighty, very nervous. These things are coming out like five grams at the most, and they are you know six inches if they're lucky, and therefore they're basically worms in the wild, in which any bird can eat them, and they have so many different predators. So you give them three inches of substrate, you will never see your corn snake, but that corn snake will feel comfortable. So I think substrate for me, and that's why I kind of mentioned in the beginning that I keep substrating every one of my babies because they will use it. And that's, I believe, what makes them secure. And I believe that what they're going to do in the wild is probably hide under rocks, hide under leaf litter and stuff like that. So depriving of that is really, you know, is not really what I'm about as far as letting the animal, you know, do its natural behaviors and feel as comfortable as possible. And that being said, I also always have a hide. And, uh, as I get older, a humid hide is always, is always a good idea. I think that's a good idea for a lot of reptiles, but yeah, other than that enclosure size babies, I start actually in like Chinese to go containers. And that's because oh, yeah, yeah. If, if, if anyone has ever had a baby corn snake, they've probably lost a baby corn snake. They get if out you, of everything. Yes. If you keep it in a normal, if you keep it in a normal 10 gallon tank with a normal mesh top or screen top, rather, they're going to get into the, they're going to get out the corner of it. They find a way to get out of it. So if you do have to go with some type of tank or glass, uh, you know, aquarium of some sort, I believe Zilla makes a critter keeper, they call it or critter something or another. And it has a sliding top. I would do the sliding top. So that's like one of the only things in which I've seen baby takes knock it out of. So if you're keeping one pet, you know, 10-gallon tank with a sliding top, you're golden, and then substrate, hide, water bowl, simple. Humidity-wise, most of the times your house humidity is going to be fine. Um, if we're being picky about it, over 40% humidity. Anything over 40%, you're talking about an animal that lives... From where I am, just a little bit east of me in in New Jersey, in the Pine Barrens, that's the northernmost range. So they're living from New Jersey all the way to the Florida Keys. So they are, you know, they are experiencing all types of different of different temperatures, humidities, and environments. So super. That's what you know. That's what makes it such a hardy animal.
0: Right. And that's, that's part of why they are such a highly recommended great pet snake, which is why they've had so many years kind of being a staple. They're fantastic animals. They're very hardy. They're very forgiving, um, very placid demeanor for the most part. And anybody first getting into something or anybody who's been in it for a long time, who just wants a fun animal that isn't going to be, challenging or defensive or bitey and it just kind of gives you that moment of like this is a snake that is low maintenance and is enjoyable. Like they're they're definitely going to fill that niche really nicely.
1: And once you get that animal on frozen thawed rodents, it is good to go for the rest of its life. Like that's the one how
0: hard is that for
1: babies? So it's tricky, and and I have animals from all different lineages. So say the diffused mutation in corn snakes, that that originates from animals in the Keys. These animals in the Keys, they are – and they used to be considered – I don't know if it was a full species or a subspecies or, you know, like the rosy rats. And Uh these animals, and as long – or as well as a lot of the animals that are in Florida or the more southern animals, they're starting off usually probably on a knolls. Okay. Or different kinds of lizards, so so it kind of depends on what mutations you're working with, what the lineage of the animal is. Um, you know, I have Okatee corns, in which, dude, they come out bigger than those animals, and they come out eating rodents right off the rip. So it kind of it, it can depend a little bit, but I would say right now, since a lot of my a lot of my collection has mutations from all over the place, like twenty five percent won't eat the first time, and then. I can talk a little bit about, you know, what I do from there as far as if anyone's looking to get baby started.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very curious about that because I just got a fresh baby that literally shed on and strive over from a friend who's local to me. And, uh, I did not expect this animal to take a frozen thawed pinky first rip. And it did. And, uh, I know that's not normally the case. So yeah, if there's like a, if you've got your pro tip in your pocket, let's, let's hear it.
1: Yeah. So I usually have kind of a hierarchy of, of what I use as prey items. So what I do is I do frozen thawed rodents right off, right from the beginning, a pinky. What I want to do is I want to get the animals to eat exactly what I want them to eat and never have any other option. So if I can get them to eat a frozen thawed pinky first time, amazing. If they don't take it, I offer again. I offer three to five times, you know, depending. I can see the animal's body condition and stuff like that. So that's kind of why I say depending. But for the most part, for the most part, you know, three to five times. And if they don't take it in that three to five times, in which I'm offering every four days, then I go and I take it a step further and I go a live pinky. Now you're going to get 50% of those animals taking that live pinky. That was the trick. But those other 50%, what I'm going to do after they don't hit that live pinky, I'm going to boil a pinky. So I'm just going to put a, a pile of, of water on the stove, boil it, boil until the pinky turns like a grayish-white coloration. It, it's going to smell pretty weird. I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> it's like. I'm not boring. sure if it, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it's getting just that rodent scent off of it. You know, when rodents are cold, they kind of pee sure. on, on themselves and stuff like that. But for some reason that will get another 50% of that 50% to eat. And then that doesn't work. And then you, you may want to take a frozen thought pinky and you're going to put some dawn dish soap on it. Mm-hmm. Or you can, you can also use baking powder and you're going to, you know, rub it all around the pinky, wash it off very, very well, get that scent off. And then use in an a knoll. and really, what you want to do—the ideal place to get an annul scent—is the mouth for whatever reason. Um, and you can, whether it's live or not alive, you can put the pinky in that annul's mouth, take it out, and then you know another fifty percent of those babies are going to eat that because really, what they want is annuls. Okay. And if that doesn't work, then what I do is I actually I make. A little bit of an annul stew. So, what I'm doing is I am actually gutting the annul. I'm taking out all the, all the basically small intestines and stuff like that, the stuff that may have some, some nasties in it. And I take that out of there and I put, I believe it's one annul to every two ounces of water. I have this written down somewhere. I haven't done wow. it since last year. So, but I do, you know, one annul, two ounces of water. So, usually I'll do a few annuls at a time. I will boil that water. Uh, bring it to a boil and I will crush the annul as it's boiling. And then I will put that to simmer and I'll usually simmer that for about four hours and I'll be mixing occasionally. What's going to happen is that that annul is going to basically start to disintegrate. You're going to get, you know, you're going to get some, some bones and stuff like that. That's all gravy. You know, you want that stuff. And, uh, and then, yeah, you take that little annul stew and then use that for scenting, and that's you know, even more effective than just rubbing it on an annul or an annul mouth. And then if that doesn't work, you know, you have a a plethora of little tricks, whether it be tuna scenting, um, or eventually, you know, you got to, you got to assist feed or before that, even before assist feeding, sorry, you, you're going to offer just straight up an annul, um, and usually that's frozen thawed For me, I realize I realized that I can't get a knoll small enough to offer a live anoll to a corn snake, unfortunately. Right. Um, yeah, so so usually I will I may have to get a piece of it in a knoll, but frozen thawed and you know you just have to colon a knoll from the pet store or pet smart or something like that. so right um, And then they may take that and then if that doesn't work, assist feed. once you're assist feeding you're you're pretty well fucked i'm gonna be honest you know your your percentage of success is going down dramatically and i think that goes for a lot of animals Mm -hmm.
0: yeah a lot of folks are very firmly in that camp that if you're assist feeding for like more than two or three times it's it's just not gonna work
1: and keep in mind that a corn snake you can't really normally assist feed because Uh, You're going to use small pinkies. These pinkies are just little balloons of gooeyness. And if you try to assist feed that in the mouth, it will pretty much explode. So, so what you want to do is you want to do a mouse leg, or a lot of times I'm doing mouse tails because that's just super easy to get down the gullet of the animal, and they seem to digest it fine. It's just a, a little bit easier of a way to to assist feed so and then you know if you're getting down to you know the baby's looking super rough, the extra meat on that mouse leg will will do will do wonders for the animal. but like I said, once you're to that point, it's really hit or miss.
0: Yeah, I've uh, I've had success using the tailing method with children's pythons, um, but every once in a while there's just an animal who's just determined to die.
1: Oh, I've kept I kept my eastern black king snakes alive for six months on mouse tails. None of them ate, zero of them ate. <laughs> so it's like, and that worked for them, and and they all took off after that. It is crazy. I didn't have corn snakes fall off immediately. Whatever. Um, I've learned over the years just to. Once you get to a certain point, use that nutrition for your king snakes, use that nutrition for any of your, you know, snakes that eat other snakes because you don't you don't really want to waste that life. I'd rather put that life to use and give nutrition to my other animals than just watch it wither away, suffer, and die.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you've got snake eaters that's part of their natural diet, waste not want not. If anybody's listening, I've got Kribos who love eating snakes. Send I me mean, your normal ball pythons. Anyway, um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, so no, I, like slugs and stuff like that. I feed those yeah. kink snakes. Yeah, uh, kink snakes will eat those readily. Stillborns. Uh-huh. I just fed one to a kink snake the other day. Uh, there's, yep. you know, all yeah. those things can kind of go to use as long as you don't let them go bad. You know, things like a stillborn or something like that.
0: Absolutely. I've uh, I've fed my both of my Kribos, uh, live and to see snakes, stillborns, frozen, um, ones that were sort of like messed up. Uh, even my uh, my is eating eaten a snake or two. So
1: I'm, I'm trying to get my olive python, my Australian olive, to, to eat snakes. Uh, no dice.
0: Yeah, interesting. I thought that was sort of like. You know, one of those snakes that uh, just wouldn't ever turn their nose up at anything. But maybe they're, uh, maybe they're domesticated or bougie. Maybe you, got <laughs> some, you got
1: some bougie olives. I mean, I have a really, really sweet female. Like she is super nice, super tame. Ah, uh, so. yeah, no. Maybe I've, she's just I've, a little tentative. I've
0: seen you work with her, man. And the fact that you can handle her the way she does is like that's the best. Like. Who cares if she doesn't eat snakes? She's awesome.
1: <laughs> then again, if there's rodents in the room, yeah, no, watch out. Is at the opening. Yes. Oh, and yeah, oh yeah, you. I have to open it with a hook, and yep. and you can throw a rodent and have her catch it, and she'll, oh, she'll yeah. jump out of the tub, and it's amazing.
0: Oh yeah, they're they're keyed in when it comes to food, no doubt. No doubt.
1: I actually so, just got a uh, sorry. I, no, I don't no want no to go worries. off on a different taj- tangent let's or whatever. It. But let's do um, it. Yeah, I just I just got this eight foot enclosure for her. So, I saw that.
0: That's not the one you you were building, right?
1: All right, I realized like, come on, man. Like, I'm not I'm not a master craftsman or carpenter of any sort. Like, I want to have an enclosure that's going to last for the rest of our lives. So I just decided, screw it, let's go PVC because ultimately. Um, Even though I dry locked the one that I made and everything like that, I want to, I want an enclosure in which I can put, you know, I'm probably going to end up with like 50 pounds of substrate in that thing. You know, I'm going to fill that up with bioactive substrate, you know, a layer of leaf litter. I'm going to have the whole cleanup crew, probably giant Canyon isopods in there as well as some springtails. Maybe even eventually if I'm feeling, if I'm feeling crazy, I'll put some super worms in there, maybe even some night crawlers or different types of. Yeah, different types of worms. I don't know, millipedes. Do it, dude. Too many legs, bro. I don't know. Oh, millipedes are easy. I have standards. Nah. Nah, uh,
0: We'll get you over your standards. I'll just mail you some without telling you one day.
1: (laughs) Well, if you do that, I'll have to try them out. But and then I, I also, today I kind of, I installed uh puck lights that are just for fun. And then I have a, a deep heat projector and you know, I'm, I'm going to experiment with giving a snake UV and all of that good stuff. I'm going to set this thing up like as legit as I possibly can, as naturalistic, as bioactive as I possibly can give it everything an animal, you know, supposedly could ever want if a snake can want anything. Um, yeah, Again, man, I'm just I'm I'm pumped at just trying all of that stuff and kind of breaking into this, you know, higher echelon of keeping rather than just keeping an animal in a tub.
0: I hear that I'm uh, lately I've been catching the bug about doing that and I'm trying to think of ways where I can look at everything that I have and, and apply that sort of thought in its current existence, but it, it, it'll take a little bit of ingenuity. But yeah, no, I feel you there for sure.
1: Even even if you have a tub, I think I think some people can experiment with bioactive tubs. Just put some bioactive substrate in there, put some oh, yeah. pods, put some springtails in there.
0: Oh yeah, it doesn't matter what the the vessel you contain your animals in is, if it has the same depth and ventilation and whatever. Who cares what it's made of? It should function.
1: And I think people are really kind of turning their nose up at some of this stuff, especially some of the older school guys. You know, a lot of the guys that that we're friends with, to be honest, and fellow breeders. But the thing is, like you put, just put some leaf litter in there, that animal will come over and they'll smell it and they'll investigate. You can see that there's kind of something turning in there, which is something that I've, you know, I'm super excited to see. And obviously that's doing something that's stimulating something.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That is absolutely enriching because it's forcing him to think about the way he moves about the enclosure. Does he go between some of those layers? He's aware of that. Um, So yeah, that's, that's a hundred percent like a great approach. Uh, I just put out um, a video today talking about enrichment in response to Ryan Dumas's video. And he's another fellow uh, zookeeper and he's got this sort of like this wild hair his ass about enrichment that's going on and and I fully support it because it's sort of like this taboo word that people get a little bit worried about and he did a fantastic video talking about sort of what it really means the different applications how you can sort of go for it and he went the like the super academic um, comprehensive route in his video and I went the uh, so this is how you can do it at home because I'm a knucklehead caveman and and, and like, I'm just going to do a couple of things and I'm going to show you how it's easy at home, but it it's so true. It is very, uh, it is very feasible. You just kind of have to put some time and and, and in thought into it and think outside the box.
1: And it's, how much do we love seeing an animal in the wild? Like if you, I can understand maybe if you are a, you know, what we call a deli cup herper, maybe you've only been to reptile shows and only know animals that are deli cups. But most of us, if we go out in the wild and we see a snake, like, we there's just something innate where you're like, holy shit, that's an amazing experience. And why not try to bring a, just a little slice. It's not the same, but just a little slice of that into your house.
0: Yeah. I think there's something different about seeing a, an animal utilize this natural environment, seeing it in that beauty versus seeing it in a man-made environment that drives us to want to create naturalistic environments, give them more room, give them enrichment, things like that, because When you're out herping and you see a king snake, like, come out from the leaf litter and dart up this rock wall.
1: Being a king snake.
0: Dude, it's so freaking cool. Like, you don't have to touch it. You don't have to catch it. You don't have to do anything. Just observe it. It's, like, one of the most, like, inherently satisfying things to see that animal in its natural environment. Whatever species it is. And, you know, just being being off in the distance of so the animal doesn't behave in response to you, doesn't acknowledge your presence and just goes about its day. You really get to see like a little window into that animal's world, which is the whole reason why we keep them here because we want to see their world. We want to see them.
1: 100%. I'd actually just, just this weekend. And I do it a lot here where I live. I live in Philly, but, but I can go to this trail that's you know less than half a mile from my house. And I literally just sit on a rock And despite most of the places in this creek, I can sit there for, it's usually about 20 minutes. Eventually, Nerodia will come out. A northern water snake will come out. And this particular one this weekend, I was just sitting there. It went, it was hunting. There's like some invasive goldfish that someone just put there, Philly shit. But it was sitting there there in ambush position. And then I guess somehow the the goldfish saw it and then he kind of took off. And he just slowly slithered around and then went to this nice little rock crevice and just went to go hide. And it was like, that snake did not have any idea, or at least it didn't see me as a threat at all and was just behaving like a water snake. And it was just incredible just to see it move like a normal, because even a lot of times in the wild, you see, you know, some type of defensive response or a flight response. But this animal was just being a water snake. And it's like, whoa, there's something even so much cooler about that.
0: A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. That's really freaking cool.
1: And I forgot to mention what what started off on my like keeping bioactive and stuff like that. I started really small as far as what animals I was using it on. So I actually started with a bunch of the, well, I started with with some rat snakes, but that really wasn't wasn't completely bioactive and completely naturalistic. I actually set up some gargoyle geckos and some crested geckos and dude, the the gargoyles in particular, you know, they'll, they'll go up high and they'll go down low, but they blend in with leaf litter like perfectly. Like they can be right in front of your face and you don't see them. And to me, like for some reason, that's exciting. You know, we all want to see our animals, but for some reason, not being able to see your animals, although they're in plain sight is, more exciting
0: oh i couldn't agree more dude that's like the best thing absolutely the best feeling that's what you've given them to the fullest and exhibiting natural behaviors it's like it's direct feedback that you understand them well
1: yeah and then i have you know i have cubaris morena the little sea isopods in there Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and i have some springtails in there And I know that, that those geckos are kind of foraging on these insects randomly and almost naturally as if, you know, they were in the wild and I don't know, that's, that's really fun.
0: Yeah. You, you really can't uh, get much more satisfaction out of that because, you know, the animals are kind of doing exactly what they would otherwise.
1: Yeah. And I mean, they don't, it's, I, I always love being hands on with animals as well, but yeah. uh, these guys, I'm able to appreciate them without getting hands on with the animals. I think uh, I have a weird thing. Like if I go to a zoo, I always end up a little bit depressed because I couldn't like, you know, I know that I could hold that <laughs> Mandarin rat snake. Like, come on, man. Just let me hold your Mandarin rat snake.
0: <laughs> and, <laughs> Yeah, well, sometimes it doesn't end up going well. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) As you're saying that, I'm looking at the various, like, scratches across my palm and the bite on my knuckle from a a lizard that was a first for me to experience, handle, and hold, and and now it hurts. (laughs) So, um, but, yeah, no, I feel you. There's something different about getting – to connect with an animal on a tactile level that brings that comprehension and understanding up to a different level that's it's almost instinctual in a way like it's hard to put things into words when there may not be like a a readily available phrase or descriptor for what you're experiencing but you know what you're thinking and feeling and and, and sort of absorbing about the individual animal and its species when you handle them. Yeah. There's just something different about it for sure.
1: Yes. And I, and I think we both keep species also that don't love human beings. Like I, I mentioned Louisiana pine snakes. So I also kind of take those behaviors into, into account and I don't handle those snakes unless they will have a day in which they will like be like, Oh, it's cool today. I'm pretty chill today. And I'll notice that and I'll pick them up. And that's like a few times a year. So I think it goes every which way.
0: Yeah. My, uh,
1: my giant hogs are like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I don't want to put any excess stress on the animal if I don't have to.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I, I made the mistake of listening to Owen uh, at the end of the last NPR interview I did with them and pulled one out and ended up getting me like peed on and shit on profusely. So it was really bad. Um, <laughs> but that's, have you I-
1: gotten any venom from those guys yet?
0: No, I've, I've yet to take a bite. I've been bluff strike or bluff struck at and, and head butted, but, uh, no biting. So but I'm, I'm quite hands off with the adults. I'm very hands on with uh, the baby that I got. So I don't think she has the, the intent to ever do it. So she's pretty safe. So the adults are just really spazzy. They're just knuckleheads. They're yeah, they're
1: crazy. So. So what do you think that is? It's just captive born and bred or is it, or is it the animal being used to you from literally hatching?
0: Well, I think the baby is used to me from hatching. She did hood up quite a bit at first and hiss and give me a lot of vocalizations as as a newborn. And as far as the adults go, they're all imports and they came in and they were super spazzy, like pee flinging, high stress. I've seen them decrease in the amount of stress that they display upon our interactions, but they are definitely nowhere near on the same level as the baby. The baby I can go pick up and she's more placid than my carpet python. So, Um, but yeah, I think there's definitely a lot to lend towards where they stem from. Wild caught animals are just a little distrusting and the babies that are captive born and bred, they're very tuned into what's going on around them. So they learn to trust you very quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean that makes sense. I think where we don't often give credit also to our interaction with the animals and what kind of effect we can have on their behavior.
0: Oh yeah, I mean every interaction with an animal should be treated as a training session. Period. Because they're going to they're going to remember that interaction. They're going to store that in their memory bank. They're going to say, "Hey, the last time this guy came in with his hands in." uh, and did X, Y, and Z, it ended up as, you know, A, B, and C. So when it happens again, they're going to be like, well, last time it was like this. And they, you know, you do that over time and consistency might work to your advantage to the the point where you do build trust and you do have the ability to distinguish between a feeding opportunity versus anything else. And so you can have a good relationship. And I think that kind of goes across the majority of species.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I really took into account when I had my first clutch of Louisiana pines, but it really was to no avail. Unfortunately, I feel like (laughs) (laughs) maybe some species are, that's just too innate, too built in, or maybe it's even apparently some lineages. Because I know people with calm ones. So
0: sure, sure. Or or maybe it's a time thing. Maybe like during a certain window of age, they're all just like that, and that at a certain point, they sort of develop some some confidence. I guess you'll uh, you'll have to have you know several years of breeding and rearing animals up to get a good good sample size to really have a clear picture.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's really the huge thing, right? I mean, for all animals is age and size. I mean, some, I have so many corn snakes that start so feisty and so crazy, but they all, you know, I think that's the cool thing about corn snakes is like 95% of them end up being completely placid as adults, as long as you don't completely blow it. Yeah.
0: I mean, the two that I have are fantastic now. And I just, I can't say enough about them. They're growing right before my very eyes. They're eating frozen thawed. They have great demeanors. They they, they have bowel movements and, and urates just fine and, and they really adapt to whatever. And they're just just wonderful snakes. I mean, across the board. So um how did so so pulling it back in um to to corn snakes, there's a lot of colubrids that just need sort of like the regular outdoor cycling of what's going on, especially when we're talking about natives. And I know corn snakes being natives, uh, aren't necessarily necessarily considered challenging, but what's your approach to breeding them? You obviously probably just let them cycle like, like outside tells you to, and kind of run that way. Is that sort of accurate or or what's your approach?
1: Yeah, somewhat. I mean, it doesn't have to be very, very strict, so kind of like I mentioned before, you know, they may be in Florida in which they don't really experience much of a winter. So people typically say that the danger zone is going to be like 60 degrees to 70 degrees or so. And I got to say that I haven't really experienced that. I haven't really had many negative effects from an occasional warm day or an occasional cold day. So I've I've also kept them in Pennsylvania and I've kept them in Texas and I've kept them in Colorado. So I've, I've bred them in different climates as well. And I have to say that I've bred them without brew mating, which is totally possible. I kept them at room temperature, 70 degrees, definitely not what you're supposed to do. And then warming it back up and started feeding, you know, feed cycling's just as important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that, that worked just as well as anything else. But typically what I do uh, in Texas, I actually kept them in an outdoor closet in which I just kept a heater and I kept the heater on 50 degrees. If it got below 50 degrees, you know, that would kick on and keep it at 50. But, you know, that that closet would go anywhere from 80 degrees to 50 degrees until uh, actually the outlet got over, you know, there was too much power going to it because, it we were in a random cold snap in texas it was probably like 20 degrees out or something which is just unheard of in texas Oof. and and that and that heater actually blew blew out the uh the outlet and then the the animals ended up being at about 28 degrees i believe it was whoa yeah yeah and you had you had some animals in water bowls and stuff which actually you know the water keeps the heat longer so that's actually right. a way for them to survive Sure. And, and, you know, that was just a, a quick snap. I fixed it immediately and, and made everything work, but they did just fine at, you know, probably about maybe at the very most 24 hours, you know, around freezing to 20 degrees. And, uh, yeah, man, they recovered just fine. And then also during that brumation, they also, you know, got to 80 degrees. So they were kind of all over the place that would seem to be catastrophic, you know, to most people on paper, but it worked out just fine. Everyone bred that year. That was one year where I had 100% and 100% breed and 100% hatch. So, you know, what does that mean? I don't know. Here here in PA, uh, winters are a bit colder, but my basement stays pretty consistently between 50 and 60, and I plop them down there. And I guess I should say the period in which I do so, it's usually, ideally, and in the last couple of years, I've been kind of late on this, but go Thanksgiving to valentine's day so those are your two kind of landmarks and when you put them down and when you take them up
0: so not too different from kind of how we approach a lot of pythons actually
1: yeah i guess i guess kind of the cycle's the same it's just not the temperatures in which the same and and feeding obviously you completely cut off feeding and i think an important thing to mention is the fact that you need to cut off feeding usually two weeks before you go into brumation to make sure that they really get all the waste out of their system. right? And then they're ready to completely shut down. You know, they you know, when you get to 50, 55 degrees, you're completely shutting down most of the activity or most of just every system in their body and they're slowing down completely. So if you, if you have something that they're freshly digesting, it may just rot in their digestive system. So you really want to avoid that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's the same concern with with pythons. I'm I'm always very cautious to give them like three, four weeks to, to clear out ahead of time. So Um so in my perspective, being somebody who's not uh does not have the pulse on the community of corn snakes, has not been tuned in until recently, who's been completely naive to it. It does seem and I don't even want to say it's an outside perspective because technically I'm inside now. But um, it does seem that along with a lot of other breed species and obscure species that aren't mainstream, corn snakes are coming back uh, as far as popularity and a resurgence in their keeping goes. And again, this could just be my naive perspective, but um, I wanted to see what your perspective on the history of corn snakes in the hobby is how they used to be extremely popular, then they fell off, and, and how they're sort of making a resurgence. And the reason why I wanted to ask this to you specifically is because, um, in, in my opinion, the, the way you present them on YouTube and Instagram and, and the podcast and everything else you do, uh you really promote them quite well and this promotion seems to coincide with what i call my perceived resurgence of corn snakes so to me it seems like you're really helping drive the train to to bring them back into the forefront but i'm sure it's it's a lot of things going on so i was wondering what your thoughts were on corn snakes coming back into the forefront uh, coming back into popularity, appreciation in the mainstream with so many other species out there. Cause it's, it's kind of hard to deny at this point.
1: Yeah. I think that, I mean, you're definitely right as far as corn snakes are 100% coming back in, in which like just. Maybe seven years ago, your snow corn snake was a twenty-five dollars snake. Your ML corn snake was a fifteen dollars snake. Now we're getting seventy-five to one hundred dollars easy for both of those animals, and it has nothing to do with money, but supply and demand dictates those prices, and therefore you can you can predict the market. You can say a lot of people, a lot more people, are interested in corn snakes. That's why they're more expensive. So that's definitely true. And you got to kind of look back, you know, go back to the eighties. Um, Even earlier than that, you have a guy named Dr. Bernard Bechtel, and he's the guy who uh, really started the corn snake morph craze. And by corn snake morph craze, I mean like every single morph craze. There were no morphs before that was going on. This is this is the beginning of the morph hobby. This is the beginning of genetics. This is a guy who was finally smart enough to realize how these things work, and he did so much. He created people don't realize that he pretty much created this breeding industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, before then, people are just randomly trading animals. All of a sudden, he got this animal in which he actually started a market for. I think Kathy Love, we had her on the podcast, who's another pioneer of the industry. I think she said she paid like $400 for the first Amel corn snake. Before then, no one was paying dollars for corn snakes or for any snakes of that matter. They were just trading. It wasn't a money thing at all. So- he really started that. And he started with the Amel corn snake and, you know, started from a wild caught individual in which, you know, someone sold to him, I suppose. I don't remember the exact story to be honest, but it started then. And then like people like, like Kathy love really, really hammered it down as well as Don Soderberg, Um, and they really, really got good at picking out different mutations, you know, figuring out, how these mutations work, figuring out, you know, different things in which, you know, Kathy found the first sunkissed corn snake, which had a neurological defect in which she actually separated the neurological defect from the actual mutation. It was two separate mutations. There's a lot of really cool things that they were doing back then because they were so attentive. They were test breeding and doing all that stuff. And they got pretty damn popular because they're super good pets. They're super easy to care for. And at the time, they were some of the only morphs. But then you saw things like king snakes, like the, the um, like pyros and stuff like that. And you had some, some milk snakes. Honduran milk snakes were huge at the time. They started getting mutations. And really, this whole industry started with colubrids. It started with corn snakes, but really, it was colubrids until the late 90s. Um, probably early 2000s is when ball pythons started taking off. Ball pythons started taking off. These colubrids started falling out of favor because for whatever reason, people like things that are foreign. People like things that are different. Pythons have a cooler shaped head. You know, they're more aggressive looking. So I guess you can look cooler to your friends. I don't know. Uh, something- <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, it was it was the new thing. It was It was foreign to everyone. So people really got onto it. And then all of a sudden, you know, just like anything else, Things kind of get old once you see once you see things too many times or everyone's doing something, people start going the other way and the market's shifting. And now I see many more people, you know, working with colubrids. and I somewhat saw this shift slowly happening. And you know, I always had corn snakes, but I knew that if corn snakes had a cheerleader, it would definitely help and it would get more people interested in it. And that's why, you know, I really wanted to do videos. I want to do podcasts because I think that this is a much easier and better snake to keep than a ball python. And I mean, those are my experiences and that's me being completely biased, right? But in my opinion, a lot easier, very, very stress-free keeping for, for a snake, easy to breed, all of that stuff. I think it's, just a perfect animal. And it's, and it's a perfect animal, not just for the keeper, but for the kept, you know, it's a perfect animal for the corn snake because they can survive your stupid little husbandry mistakes of which we've all made. And, and I don't think, I don't think I have in any way, you know, maybe I've had a small part in this, but I think it's natural, you know, and I think most markets are natural like that.
0: Sure. I, I definitely think everything you said kind of nailed it perfectly. The one thing that just really stands out to me is it seems like right at the time where everything was sort of taken off there you are really sort of being a champion for the species um in this resurgence almost and and i think it's been absolutely beneficial and and i always thinking um, i'm always thinking about like regardless of whatever species you're in um you sort of as a breeder dictate what the market responds to. You always have some sort of influence on it. And if you really hit the pavement and you really put in a lot of work and hype it up in an an exciting way and really have a lot of information to back it, you can genuinely uh, bring up a market value just by being a great personality and a spokesperson for that. And so it's been really cool to see because I've known plenty of folks that work with corn snakes, you know, during the, you know, if if we can call it any sort of thing where they were the not cool era. Um and they've just never faded off. You haven't lost uh lineages, morphs, things like that. They're still there holding strong. And in fact they're they're growing better. And they've got a potential to really do a lot. Um so I I, I really think it's fantastic to sit on the sidelines of as far as where I'm at and watch this happen. And next thing I know you know, I've got an anry corn sent to me and then I go pick out uh, an anery diffused Tessera and I start like asking questions and learning all of this stuff. And next thing I know, I realized there's this whole other world that I didn't even bother to pay attention to um, just because I was so enveloped in everything else. And, and I find it fascinating. And so um, it's really cool because they have such a huge history behind them. And you nailed it. You absolutely nailed it in the way you talked about how, like, they really did sort of kick off this industry as a whole. Like, what happens if nobody ever looked at snakes in the way the initial folks who pioneered corn snakes did? There's a legitimate chance that nobody would have looked at snakes that way, and mutations would have just been variable, and it never would have spawned into this industry that we have today. Therefore, you know, never inspiring any of us to have this hobby to quite the degree we have. So it's, um, you know, hats off to corn snakes. Anybody who who is sitting there poo-pooing corn snakes like, like I did, it's just I give them a chance. They're so fascinating. I, I find myself checking on the ones in quarantine that I have and just like, how are you so little? How are you so confident? How are you figuring this out? Like, what the heck?
1: Interactive. Like, more interactive and seemingly, like, neuroplasticity exists as far as they will really understand how you're keeping them and how you're feeding them. Like, they will really react to things more than any other animal that I've ever had. And maybe that's domestication. Maybe that is just the species as a whole. But, yeah, and that's not because I have corn snakes. It's just... Damn, they're just yeah that's that's the animal man and i really like the animal
0: yeah yeah i mean the first observation i noted when i brought one in was that this thing would poke its head out of the hide and look at me like my kribos do and then the second one i brought in did the same thing and like dude these things are like insane like small colorful endless amounts of kribo like
1: And you won't have as many mistakes as far as food goes. They are actually, I believe, smarter as far as differentiating your hand from food. It's kind of incredible.
0: Yeah. The Kribos make that mistake from time to time. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) I've had my thumb in both of them twice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not not in the Kloeko, of course.
0: No, no, no. The other end, the pokey end. Not the poopy end. (laughs) Not the poopy end, the pokey end.
1: But I think it's 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 important to say the fact that you know people like me, it's easy to get behind these because we're standing on the shoulders of giants as far as all the work that Dr. Bechtel, that Kathy La, that Don Soderberg, all these people have done so much work in which, dude all I have to do is take some pictures of a pink snake, a purple snake. I didn't have to make these things. They all had to figure this stuff out. Now I just get to play with snakes that are literally of every single color and which anyone can say, even if someone who doesn't like snakes, they're like, Oh, but you have a pink and white snake. You know, that's much more endearing and people are much more lucky to get on that train.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. They're fantastic. I, I, I completely agree with your assessment that ball pythons are not a good first snake because of their feeding tricky sort of behaviors and little subtleties. Corn snakes are so forgiving, so curious, so personable, so easy, and just hearty animals. I, yeah, I've just been blown away by them recently. Um, they're a hobby staple, and in my opinion, I'm very, very excited and proud as somebody who's a community member in this hobby to see that they're getting resurgence uh, back in the limelight because that means people are giving them that sort of just do and attention that they had so many years ago. It's come back around and it's become almost timeless. Um, so I think they're fantastic animals. And if anybody's sitting here they're like, oh, I only want big snakes. I don't want retakes. I don't want berms. I only want big, bad animals. Ash, you know, whatever. You're just missing You're just missing the point of it all. Like you really ought to give them a shot. And sometimes for people, it's time and place. And you know, for me, that's exactly what happened. Like it just it just never happened until like 22 years in keeping reptiles. You know what I mean? So,
1: and keeping snakes for me has never been a dick measuring contest. It seems to be like that for a lot of other people, uh, retic guys, but. It's really like just get over that, man, and try to see the animal for what it is. For me, I feel like you need to be – you should be involved in this for the love of the animals, not how cool the animals are perceived to be. You know, Corn snakes, when I got into them, were definitely not cool, definitely seen, and still a lot of the breeders are predominantly female. I don't give a fuck. I mean there's nothing feminine about this snake, and I don't even care if there is, man. It's just a cool-ass snake. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: absolutely. There's something for everybody in corn snakes. And even if you are one of those people that only keeps big snakes and all this stuff, you can't sit here and tell me that having an animal that you don't have to have backup for in order to clean and change waters isn't a refreshing change. So um, I'm just saying, like having something that's a fun pet that you don't need to worry about being choked out on or having like a team of people to help you maintain, that's a that's a realistic animal. That's a good animal. And uh, yeah, I I spent some time recently over at Glenn Brooks's place and and looked at everything he had. And
1: <laughs> oh, incredible!
0: <laughs> oh, dude, it, he like explained like the heritability on things and the diffuse gene and Okatee's and how there's like the actual true Okatee, but then there's also like a morph that's just sort of like a phenotypic lime bread thing and the different amels and ultra. That's AMLs fair, and all. It's real
1: sketchy. Like like oh. Uh, initially, are from the Okatee Hunt Club in South Carolina. Those are right. Okaties, right? right? But now it's just an expression used to, you know, explain the phenotype in which any corn snake with large borders around that that saddle pattern is right. considered Okatee. For me, I feel as which its locality in which we can only call true Okaties Okaties. And someone like Glenn has red zeps, in oh, which. Yeah are the only true locality Okatee's. So they were not Okatee's, not but reverse Okatee's. So it was an Amel corn snake found around the Okatee Hunt Club. I think it was Jasper County. I think it. I think already Okatee Hunt Club is off-limits, so it was Jasper County, which is the county which the Hunt Club's in. Right. But found there, an Amel found from there with large border patterns bred to Okatee's, in which you have a true locality, reverse Okatee. And then you have devil's garden anneries. You have this certain part of the country in which uh, corn snakes tend to have the annery gene. And then you have locale-specific annery corn snake, also badass. So you're really hitting, whether you're a locality guy, whether you're a morph guy, they've got everything.
0: Yeah. No, that was the the one thing that I noticed. And I remember Garrett Hartle talking about how he was on some podcasts. He was talking about how he's going to go out and get you know, Ocatees pure Ocatees and really put it because he was so disappointed that like exactly like you said, there was some confusion with like m- a morph sort of phenotype as far as how it was referred to versus the actual locality and the history of it. It almost seemed like some folks just never knew the history and lost it. And he wanted to make sure it, that sort of history of it all was preserved. And after hearing that I was like, man, this is just like, uh, this is just like IJs and carpets, <laughs>
1: I think the cool thing about corn snakes is that the people who have the history are actually still in it. That's how badass it is. Yeah. Is that the the people who originally got the first red Zep are still in it. You have Trumbauer and I'm I'm blanking on the other guy's name. And I want to say his first name's like Louie or something like that. I need to I need to really look it up because it's kind of frustrating me that I don't remember. But they are still in corn snakes man and then kathy loves still in corn snakes don soderberg still in corn snakes I mean the, the the history is still at our fingertips we just need to not completely fumble it
0: yeah and I think that's part of what garrett was getting at is we have this rare opportunity it's a native species that we aren't completely cut off from preserving you know we have the ability to make sure we do the responsible thing about it and I just you know, that plus all the morphs, like you said, it's just, they're just, they literally have something for everybody, period. Beginner, expert, locality nut, morph nut, purist, crosser, whatever. Like there's something for everybody. So they're-, they're So pretty- I
1: want to- I want to get get his name right, so it's Howie Sherman. Sorry, I totally fucked up. I don't know why his name is Louie for a second, but Howie Sherman. He has a Sherman line, Okatee, stuff like that. He is the one who started the Red Zep True Locality Reverse or Albino Ogatee Corn Snake. The only True Locality Albino.
0: Well, hats off to him because— And he's still doing it. Still Not up. only is the name fantastic, and just yes. create creativity points 10 out of 10, but I've seen some of these animals in person myself and they take my breath away every time I see them. Like if somebody were to produce some and and I had the ability to get some, I don't think I would bat an eye. Just they're they're electric, they glow, they're red and white, they're they're just Absolutely stunning yeah, snakes, regardless rally? of where you stand. Oh, no, I lost pipeline, Riley.
1: How am I still you know, on it, Riley? Whatever, not they're on. just beautiful animals. Yeah, corn snakes and, uh, are the absolute badass, greatest so snakes in know, the world. And I'm going to say this because I can, because Riley's not here. And you heard it first. Riley, are you there what? now? I hear something. <laughs> I lost you for a second.
0: You lost me. I was just singing praises for the Red Zepp line.
1: Ah, uh, we lost it. But did you see... I think it was either Tony Dungara or it was or it was Howie Sherman or Craig Trumbauer. They posted all the alternative names for the Red Zepp, and there was all these types of band names/slightly slash slightly sexual names in which they would have called the Line <laughs> of Snake, which I thought was just the funniest thing ever. That's
0: great. I'm glad they kept it. I'm glad they kept it Red Zeppelin because that's a pretty sweet
1: name. Oh yeah, 100%. Yeah.
0: So now I'm, I'm, I'm newly indoctrinated into corn snakes and I'm a big fan. And, and to be completely honest, I'm glad I, I don't have more space available to get more. <laughs> I've got my pair and I'm happy and I'm going to enjoy sort of that.
1: Yeah. So I, I finally found, I found the post and yeah, it's pretty, uh, Baboon in, in estrus corns was one of the names. Um, burst oh, hymen uh, corn. Oh, no. Corn, popped oh. cherry corns. Beef oh. Bloody stool. Oh. Grateful red. <laughs>
0: oh. Okay, that's all right.
1: <laughs> oh, there's runny beaver. Stained beaver.
0: Oh.
1: Yeah, there's there's some good ones. Oh. <laughs> oh. Blowjob corn? I don't know how that got past there.
0: wow. People were bored. (laughs) Dang, that's terrible. Yeah,
1: I think uh, Tony D of Tony D Reptiles, he posted this whole giant list of potential potential names they had gone through before they got to Red Zep.
0: Well, whoever made the final call, you were correct.
1: They were correct, yes.
0: They made the right choice. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) Um, that, That's actually... uh, I could see myself pursuing trying to get some into my collection d- despite not having space. So, uh, if it anybody
1: ultimate corn nerd type, yeah. of, you know, ultimate snake nerd in general, you know, snake for sure.
0: Yeah. So if anybody's listening, don't try and sell me those please. Cause I can't <laughs> don't do it. So, all right. So aside from corn snakes and because you have so much other variety and you're such a, sort of a pioneer for some of these potentially overlooked animals and you're really doing great work with them are there any species that you're still looking to add to your overall population along those lines
1: oh dude i have some baron's racers coming
0: oh wow. I'm there you go excited. those are sweet dude oh blue ones brown ones what what are you working what are you aiming for
1: just regular greens i'm not a fancy oh, individual.
0: Regular, I I oh dude regular greens are gorgeous
1: what What i don't like about baron's racers is the brown ones are the rarest and therefore the most expensive and like come on man that's a slap in the face no one wants a brown snake in comparison if you can even have green or blue there's no way a normal sane human being would ever want a brown baron's
0: racer. yeah i I remember hearing John Michaels talk about it on a podcast and and he was hypothesizing that maybe it's because everybody went so hard after the greens and the blues that they, the Browns just fell to the wayside naturally. And now that because they're in such, you know, low supply demand just happens to be up, but yeah, that's silly. That's completely backwards.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I can't support that kind of snobbery. I just can't.
0: Yeah. Well, you know what you have to do is you have to now have all three
1: well, I definitely got to get blues. That's a hundred percent sure. But it's it's not that straightforward. I think I think even John Michaels. I think he ended up getting out of his. So I don't, yeah. I don't even think he has them. So they, I don't know if anyone is breeding him. They oh, uh, that's scary. He had
0: a big collection. Yeah, I know they changed. I think Glenn
1: right. may have them.
0: Does Glenn he? Glenn does have some? Yes.
1: Does he have blues? Uh, yes. <laughs>
0: Yes, I've played with those.
1: <laughs>
0: They're really cool, dude. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely got some. So, um, But, man, I, that's another species to talk about. You know, Overlooked and underrated and should never be lost to the hobby right there. So that's great that you're getting some of those. You'll be able to really promote those nicely, I think.
1: Yeah, and shout out to I mean Zach Lofman, the guy who I was talking about earlier, who I'm giving Louisiana Pines. He actually produced them. He also produced false water cobras another species which just like that's pretty badass you know that you yeah. work with something like that
0: yeah those are cool big 7 foot fish eating stinky poo flinging colubrids.
1: <laughs> yeah like not for me
0: <laughs> like a creebo with a duvernoise gland that eats fish and actually paints poop on the ceiling and the walls of its enclosure yeah
1: they're yeah, awesome. and i I had my buddy Shane on the podcast last night and he has false water cobras and he's like yeah those i have a male that chases me across the room and it yep. shits everywhere. Yep. So, yeah.
0: Yep. Sounds like a falsy. They're fun. <laughs> hey,
1: Tell me something to... you would work with.
0: Something I would work with. Yeah, I've, I have worked with them. I worked with a big seven-foot male back in Santa Barbara. And anytime you'd open his enclosure for feeding, you had to have the rat loaded on the tongs, ready to go, open the door with a hook, and, like, open it, fling it open and back up and put the rat between you and him so he could grab it flying out of the enclosure and then you just shove him in a bin and do whatever cleaning you need to do he was great once you get him out but he was an absolute psychopath and just like he would just poop like liquid awful death ammonia like worse than my crebos and my mad hogs blended together with like a live animal oh it's just horrible horrid absolutely foul
1: well, uh, part of why I believe, at least my my thoughts on that, at least, are, you know, and I've had hognose before, just regular Western hognose, uh-huh. but it seems as though all those animals in which that are very much natural amphibian eaters,
0: uh-huh.
1: they seem to, when they're on rodent diets, shit weirdly. And then with the hognose, you're having animals with, to me at least, seems like drastically shorter lifespans, especially for females. You're seeing reproductive ages that are much you know you're only seeing animals get to like six years or so you're not seeing animals go very far and i think part of it is because we're trying to give them you know european lab mice or something like that
0: yeah i mean you're definitely you're definitely pushing their organs and their liver and all their biology against what it's supposed to do and because it has to process such denser material it's definitely putting all of their internal organs into overdrive so i think you know, if you can keep an animal on a natural diet, you're going to get a longer life, regardless of the species.
1: Is that something that you're able to do at the zoo? I mean, are, do you or do you pretty much are you restricted to rodents?
0: I mean, we don't have anything uh, too crazy. We do have a giant garter snake and we're able to give her fish. That's sweet. Yeah, she's uh, she's a wild caught um rescued rehab missing an eye missing part of her tail um deemed non-releasable but i'm not sure why because she's an absolute savage you got to watch your fingers around her (laughs) but all we do is give her fish and she's champ so there are definitely there's definitely ways around it i don't think anybody should ever settle for a strictly rodent based diet for animals that don't live like that in the wild with so many options that are out there you can get frozen fish you can you can get anoles, you can get geckos, you can you can get quail, you can get eggs, you can get other snakes and things. It might take a little extra legwork and a little bit of money, but getting into that species ahead of time, you should be aware of that if that's what they eat. And I just, yeah, I can't, I, like I can't support people who keep king cobras and feed them only rats. Like that just doesn't make sense to me. So I'm a big fan of that.
1: Even I think I need to do a little bit better job, especially because even having rat snakes, I mean, they're rat snakes, they eat rodents, right? But uh, corn snakes, rat snakes in the wild, they're eating a good amount of birds. I mean, corn snakes in particular are eating a good amount of gnolls, which I don't give them that because they like them way too much and they may get stuck on them. But but something like chicks is something that's readily available and is very cheap, especially if you're – you know. If you're in Pennsylvania, there's some rural areas in which you can get some really, really cheap chicks, and I think that's a good idea. You know, to to really switch it up, and that's much more natural of a diet for them.
0: Yeah, I agree, a hundred percent.
1: Yeah, and I've I've kind of really slacked in that in that area of my husbandry, which I think is kind of why you know we need to have less animals. I mean, for me, it's I don't get to pay enough attention to you know, keeping a certain amount of animals bioactive. Right now I just have a sluice, I have a pair of Slovinsky's corns that are bioactive. I have an emery rat snake that's bioactive, all my geckos, and um eventually the olive python, but it's like, you know, too many animals in which to make that more of a thing, but I'm slowly switching over. And then the the very diet is like you know, it's hard enough just to get rodents. It's a lot of work, you know, to figure out different sources. But I know that I have it here. You know, in Philly, there's, you know, Asian markets in which I could get all types of weird stuff, you know, to give some of these species of animals. Yeah, you can get frog
0: legs, chicken necks, livers, all sorts of stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think I
0: think it comes down to, you know, being honest with yourself. Once you get to a point where you understand where you're at, what's available, how your time is available to be divvied up. You know, you're, you're dead on as far as being able to humbly and honestly evaluate yourself and say, I don't have the time to do these animals justice. And then sort of finding your lane, whether that be one species or a genera of species or taxa in particular. So I think that's a very valid point to bring up. Um, yeah, if you really want to give your animals the opportunity to thrive, not just survive, um, evaluating where you're at overall is healthy.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't want to. I'm not really ashamed to say that, you know, I may have too many animals to do that stuff because I'm acknowledging it and I want to change it in the future so that I'm able to do those things. And those are things in which, you know, maybe when I first started keeping, it wasn't general knowledge or it wasn't the thing that you first thought about, you know, to vary the diet and stuff like that. I feel like really we just started talking about that, at least in the hobby, you know, maybe in the last four five years, 10 years at the very, yeah. very most. Yeah. So uh, yeah, there's, there's no shame in saying this is what I'm doing now, but I plan to change it in the future.
0: Yeah. The pendulum swings back and forth and eventually it, it keeps getting closer and closer to, you know, perfection without ever actually achieving perfection. It's, but it's all progress. So that's the whole point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think progress never ends at least hopefully it never ends, you know, for, it shouldn't anyone who's keeping. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It shouldn't. We should always strive for progress. So
1: yeah. And there's always more to do. There's always more to learn.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent. That's how you should operate every day. Um, As far as some of your, your project goals with your animals, do you have any favorites you're looking forward to and, and what are, uh, what are some of your hopes and dreams that you see in the future for the species that you keep hobby wise?
1: Oh, that's a good one, but I, I really have to pee. Can you repeat that when I come back?
0: Absolutely. I will probably <laughs> do the same, and I'm going to make a note.
1: Oh, yeah. Andy, edit out. Pee break at two Thanks, hours. buddy. Love you. <laughs> that was
0: excellent. Ah, uh, so good. <laughs> All right. Let me put that in there. Oh, nope, nope, nope. Hey, hey, hey. I just got to make a note. Uh, three. Okay, so um, what are some of your favorite project goals with your animals in your collection currently? And what do you hope to see in the future? with the species you keep as far as the hobby is concerned. So it's sort of a two part question. Like what are you really most stoked about looking forward to in the future with your, with your projects and, and what really would you love to see as far as a bigger picture hobby wide as it pertains to the animals you keep?
1: Yes. So I think uh, a big thing, at least corn snake wise, I guess I'll start with a corn snake project that I'm super excited about. I have, and I showed you this, I have this Anary Tessera girl in which is completely perfectly striped and also is very, very dark in coloration. So she started off this purple coloration and then she matured into this gray and black animal. So, if people haven't seen a corn snake, an anery corn snake mature, they usually start like black and light gray, and then they kind of progress into this light purplish or just light gray on lighter gray type of thing. They just kind of fade out, right? And this animal in particular got darker. So she started off like purplish and then got darker. So that's like some type of enhancer gene. It's not exactly red factor. It may be something that we call red coat, but it's not acting like really either of those. And it's increasing melanin over time. She had her first clutch last year and this animal started off looking exactly like her and is going in a weird ass direction. There's it's, very contrasted already. So I'm super excited to see what the animal looks like this year's clutch just actually hatched out. And I have this, I have this purple thing that starts off with a stripe and completely fades out. Like, you know, three fourths of the body is just purple without any pattern, just completely faded out. So I'm super pumped for all that stuff. And that is a project in which, I just couldn't be more excited for.
0: Yeah. So you you showed me the photos of that and that those are completely different from the two annery animals that I have as far as how they look, uh, from the hatchling photos and, and they're not going that same direction. So that's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. And I have, I have a regular annery test for a girl, like couldn't be more different than that animal. It's quite, quite cool. And, uh, other than that, I have the Honey Project, which I've also always really loved. It's Caramel kissed, And I have these really, really yellow animals in which I'm trying to get a very yellow animal with a bunch of black. And I have some babies which are making some good progress. And then I just cross that honey into Palmetto. And now I have – dude, it's it's crazy. I have, I have Hep Palmetto. Actually, I have a Hep Palmetto tessera, motley, and het palmetto is an incomplete dominant gene, so it doesn't work traditionally like other snake genes work as far as calling it a het, right? It's a true het meaning. So say you have, say you, and I heard you explain this actually in your video. So if you have, if you have a pastel, that's actually a het.
0: Yeah, it's a
1: And then homozygous would be the super pastel. So, So this is like the true, the true meaning of het. It's a het palmetto, motley tessera, and then it's het for honey. So het caramel kissed possible het anery hypo ghost. And then so so Jeez. I'm super excited. Like imagine you know, Palmetto's a confetti snake. I'm looking for a confetti snake that's just yellow and black dots, which I just think is fucking badass. So I'm super pumped about that. Or one that's purple and pink. Because I have a coral ghost that that went into there. So you know. I'm excited about that. I may hatch out my first palmettos finally after after whiffing on them. I might ha- hatch those out this year. So those are some projects I'm excited about. But like species or animal Louisiana pine snakes, I can't get over as far as like, yeah, man, that's that's just the pinnacle for me. And it, I thought maybe the allure would go away this year because it's my second time breeding them. And it's the same, man. And and I have the female that I'm growing up is, and I don't mean to like over exaggerate the the mom in which it came from was probably the best Louisiana pine snake I've ever seen, and the baby is better than her. And I am, dude. These things are yellow and red, like like you know, like a burgundy, like a burnt burgundy red,
0: right. Yeah, no, they they look freaking amazing. Uh, it's so much contrast at such a, an early age. They're beautiful.
1: Yeah, so I, yeah, I, I don't think I'll ever get over that project. Um, Eastern black king snakes are kind of, uh, you know, they're on my shit list half the time because they don't always love to eat, and uh, and and the female launched out of the tub and bit my foot the other day, so she's she's on the shit list too. <laughs>
0: Friggin' king of snakes, man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> but yeah, I, I love those animals and uh a lot of the a lot of the other animals I just a lot of the other species. Oh Slaminsky's corn snakes. So if people don't know the backstory on those, Joe Slaminsky is a herpetologist and he actually died September eleventh, two thousand one in Burma of a crate bite. He actually took really good notes of all the effects of the venom of the many banded crate. So he actually got bit when he was on obviously a research trip there. And he had an assistant who was a local there who had a bunch of bags that were marked. Um, this is a wolf snake or Lycodon or Dinodon, um, depending on the taxonomy at the time was Dinodon, um, which is a non venomous snake, which is an exact mimic of the corals of the uh, many banded crate. And then he had many men and crate bags, and he handed him one of the DinoDon bags, and it just happened to be a misidentified crate. And Joe Slowinski reached in like it was a normal non-venomous uh, wolf snake or DinoDon, and he got bit. And he actually took really good notes of all the effects that he had throughout this whole time. And while that was happening, they were trying to get. He was allergic to antivenom because he had already been bit by a snake and had gotten antivenom before, and he had an adverse reaction. And they were trying to get him airlifted out, and they were trying to call the embassy. They didn't realize at the time there was a terrorist attack happening in the United States. Right. So there was a perfect storm in which led to one of the greatest herpetologists, you know, from a long line of herpetologists coming out of uh, the University of Kansas. You know he he died in Burma that day, so when when uh they found a new rat snake species in the state of Louisiana, the state in which Joe was not native he was actually a native New Yorker hmm. um, but his favorite state to be in was Louisiana. he had gone to uh to school there after Kansas and had worked there for quite a while before going, I believe to the Bay Area. Um, they found a rat snake there and they named it after him and it was it 's the the most or the the newest described species in North America as far as rat snakes go as far as colubrids, probably as far as all snakes go and wow. uh it was originally thought to be an intergrade of a cord snake and an emery rat snake and then they found out after their genetic testing that uh that it 's a full species so that snake to me the backstory of that snake is tremendous and I respect it. And it's, you know, named after someone who gave their life for herpetology basically. And, and, uh, yeah, man, I have a pair of Slawinski's rat snakes and they will, I may have a female up to breeding size next year. And that is an animal in which no one knows exists. No one cares about, and I want people to care about, and I can't wait to reproduce them.
0: Well, when you do sign me up for a pair because that's that's freaking cool man
1: that's what i'm talking about you just gotta you gotta know for me like that's really that's what gets my dick hard is those weird natural history stories and you know the whole story behind the species is amazing and and i know that that hits a certain amount of people who are really really interested in animals like this like it hits you right, right where it counts. And that's what it does for me. And I'm glad it does, you know, for someone like you as well, who's so interested in natural history, rare animals, just interesting animals. It's about as interesting to me as an animal can get, you know, like the backstory of it at least.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, that story in itself is priceless. It could be, a, you know, slap a story like that on anything and you'll have a, a similar effect. That's just... That's pretty profound, man. That's really cool. And and I think uh I think that it's uh, a North American animal with that history is uh is almost like a sense of pride. Uh sort of like, you know, it's like ownership, like rooting for your your home team sort of a deal. Um you got to you got to have love for the locals, right? So I think that's about as as important up there as something like an eastern indigo and eastern diamondback rattlesnake some of the more you know like texas horned lizards like all of these quintessential american al- american alligators you know what i mean like that's up there a slowinski's corn snake should be up there so i think that's pretty freaking cool
1: yes and the where they are located is also interesting so they're actually located almost not similar to louisiana pine snake in particular but the louisiana pine snakes in east texas and as well as West Louisiana and then South, the, the Switzies corn snake is right on the border of East Texas and West Louisiana. It is that similar environment in particular. You may see people call them the kasachi corns. There's kasachi National forest right. in that area. And, uh, yeah man. like it inhabits the area in which all the snakes I love come from, but there's also a random disjunct population in Arkansas dude if I it's one thing and, I, and I'm going to get uh, Chris of dark horse, dark horse herpeticulture. he has a he has a Texas individual because right now I have the Louisiana individuals. He okay. has a Texas individ, individual, I want that, and then dude, if anyone has Arkansas? animals dude i am so all over that it is a small pocket a small small pocket of animals there i don't know anyone who has them i don't even know anyone who's seen them
0: sounds like we need to make sure we have the right uh fishing licenses and make a vacation out of it
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah and uh i know i know some guys over there that know the area very well and I, they haven't looked for that snake in particular because even though they're lifelong herpetologists in one sense or another, zoo guys in particular, uh-huh. and, and they go herping there all the time, mm-hmm. they, they don't even know the significance of that animal. That's how like under the radar and just kind of forgotten about this animal is. Wow. wow. We well, need
0: them. We, yeah, we need that. We need, <laughs> we need those animals and we need to change that because we can. We know we can we can do it we can do it it only takes a few just the <laughs> two of us yeah
1: dude like right. there's still things right under our nose there's yeah. still things here in the united states right under our nose yeah and then you got things like the western green rat snake which is just a foreign looking animal you know yeah, a those things are rat
0: trip. Snake, yeah those are cool man
1: hella hard to keep in comparison to say you know as uh, the, to the other and rat snakes.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Way, way more challenging and subtle differences for sure.
1: And these are things that aren't, they aren't figured out. So long-term success with them, you know, Casey Lazic has had great success recently with breeding them. And I mean, just like Casey Lazic has great success breeding anything. Right. But, right. but the long-term success just isn't there for anyone. And you're seeing animals that are getting sick every, you know, chronically so that's just an animal that is straight up the husbandry is not figured out so we look at all these rare python people which we're all friends with mm-hmm. they're all trying to find out you know boland's python scrubs P- scrub pythons but there's also these colubrids right native in the united states that still aren't figured out man and i think that gets me fucking excited yeah no it's really cool
0: i couldn't agree more and i think your level of excitement behind it is what's going to be instrumental and in, and in keeping that attention on the that species because without somebody championing them and like going for it and speaking about them nobody's ever going to put effort into them so i think we should absolutely change that and i think uh i think every species has its day and it, it all depends on time and place and individual but yeah, I think that should happen. We should we should do some some coordinated herping efforts for you know establishing that species.
1: Oh, it's on, man! It's on
0: like Donkey Kong. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, dude. I'm super super stoked. I'm absolutely making a note for this. This is like some like juicy juicy stuff.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> you don't even have to go to New Guinea or anything to do it, too.
0: No, but we should do that too.
1: We should do that too, yes. Yeah,
0: we should do that too, multiple times. Um. I need to travel, dude. I'm like getting so like cabin fever here.
1: I haven't even been to West Texas yet. I mean, that is something that when, I lived in Texas. But you know how much how far Dallas is from West Texas? It's like you might as well be in a different super country. super far.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I've driven through the whole state. It's quite a track. Um, yeah. I it's just-
1: like, that's somewhere you need to be. As a herper yeah. in the United States, that is somewhere you gotta you gotta go.
0: Yeah, it's definitely on my list. Absolutely, so are most places in the Southeast United States, just because it's so different from where I'm at. Although I can't say that I've been to everywhere here in the Southwest, but I've certainly caught horn lizards and alligator lizards and things like that. And I would love to like see it all. Um, but I think what's really killed me was I was supposed to go on Australia right be- or go to Australia right before the the whole COVID stuff locked everything down. And uh, it was like right there three days before my trip, and so I've just been like craving this, tr- craving this vacation that will never come.
1: Fuck, man, that sucks.
0: Oh, and then the nails in the coffin that were like the total worst part about it was um, uh, what's the uh, what's the airline? Let me pull it up right here in case somebody who works for them is listening. Qantas, Q A N T S, Qantas Airlines. Those. Just wonderfully considerate folks there um, decided that when COVID mandated two week quarantines and no traveling internationally and I tried to call and cancel my flight and get my refund, they charged me a $500 fee for cancellation despite their website saying that they were giving full refunds during COVID time. But no matter what I said or who I talked to, they didn't do that. So I lost $500 on on that. And then uh, the Airbnb refund, for some reason, PayPal took half of my Airbnb refund for everything that was over there. So I ended up losing $650 of the money that I paid on flight and reservations over there just because these people were trying to like get as much money out of their losses as possible because they knew COVID was going to absolutely screw them. So, Qantas, you suck. <laughs> I
1: mean, you work at a zoo. I mean, you're wealthy, right? Y'all, Not a big deal.
0: Yeah, no big deal. Six hundred fifty dollars, dude. Are you kidding <laughs> me? That's like over half. That's, brutal, that's over half a paycheck for me. That's significant, and they're just like, "No, we're gonna pocket that and flip you the bird."
1: Strange times.
0: Yeah. Strange so, times. anybody who's listening, you know, pass us on to Qantas Airlines and tell them they can sit and twirl. Um, <laughs> so. We're we're crossing the two hour line mark, and what I wanted to do was get to these closing questions, and then and then what we're definitely going to need to do is follow back up with you uh, with more of your Louisiana pine stuff, your Louisiana corn projects, and I just I'm really like geeked on my corn snakes right now. I I just keep.
1: I haven't Dude, you would love Sowinski's, man. You would love I, something like
0: that. I already do, you jerk. You just <laughs> talked me into them, and I haven't even seen more than a couple photos. But to me, they're like the the IJs of uh, North American rat snakes, and I need them. So, thank
1: you. Something for that. only a mother can appreciate. You know, it's just it's a gray and brown snake, but damn, is it worth the story behind them? Yeah, but they
0: look super cool, dude. And for me, it's so far left field. Like, I just, you know, I don't have a lot of colubrids. My my day-to-day colubrid experience or my Madagascar giant hognos, and they hate seeing me, so I leave them alone, don't look at them. And then my Kribos, and they look nothing like anything else. Kribos look more like cobras than anything else. So as far as any rat snake is concerned, they're like aliens to me.
1: Oh, I, I was just I was just getting started, man. We're just getting excited here
0: well we'll definitely have to do some more corn snake talk and and I'd love to to see if we can just get like a big corn snake round table one of these days or something cuz like I'm just absolutely geeked on them right now they're super cool
1: oh yeah yeah it's under it's weird how such a mainstream species can be underrated at the same time
0: yeah yeah they're quite an anomaly in that way I agree 100%
1: but you have to appreciate the animal for what it is in comparison to what people perceive it to be.
0: Yeah. They're great. They're absolutely great animals across the board, like five stars, whatever category you rate. them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't deny it. They're yeah, like, I'm
1: writing a Yelp Peru right now.
0: Yeah. They're like, uh, they're like the carpet pythons of colubrids.
1: Dude. They, they occupy a very, very similar niche, if not the exact same niche of a, as a carpet Python.
0: Yeah. Just different continent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there it is.
1: So keep them, people. So, Come yeah. on. Yeah. So the up.
0: the moral of the story is, if if you like any of these animals, for your python fix, you need Morelia. For your colubrid fix, you need corn snakes, and for your boa fix, you need rainbow boas. And if you have those three, you're gonna have a good life. I think that's how that will go.
1: <laughs> I, think I think that's eternal happiness forever.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's if you like peel the back of like all your Bibles and Buddhist pages and things like that. It's like inscribed in there. It's sewn in.
1: It's It's in there. You just got to look.
0: Yeah. And if you can't see it, you're not looking at the right spot. (laughs) All right. So these guest closing questions, we're going to rapid fire this. Who
1: do you look up to most in the reptile world? Hmm. Probably Eric Burke, as far as what I, and sorry for making it a long answer, but. Because of I saw that when I saw them on NPR, I saw I saw Eric and Owen as people that were really, really excited about a snake in which a very small amount of people were interested in. But they were so excited that they built this community around it and made them cooler than they were previously. And I feel like that's what I want to do with a lot of rat snakes. So I take a lot of inspiration, not only from podcasts, but into how I approach my animals from from Eric and Owen.
0: Well said. I like that answer a lot. What is your holy grail reptile to keep?
1: Uh, two ataras don't count, do they?
0: Sure they can. I mean, it, you know, just take away all your blinders. Like, if you could do it, what would it be?
1: Yeah, two ataras. I mean, they're not technically reptiles, but they're something.
0: Yeah, they're like a dinosaur reptile relic. It's
1: a dinosaur. Yeah. What? How could you go wrong?
0: Yeah. I, uh, I don't see the only thing that I think no matter when you get started, you have working against you is longevity because they'll live like twice as long as you like a tortoise. And they're not even like sexually mature until they're like 20 something years old. So, and you rarely see them and they need to be super cool. And they're just like, they're like the tortoises of dinosaur lizard things. So.
1: Dude, I saw mad because I went to the Fort Worth Zoo and they have two ataras there. It's just like uh, the the fact that people are at that zoo every single day and don't understand the significance of that animal. It's just come on, man. Seeing that was just incredible.
0: Yeah, that's because people are sheep.
1: Damn it. <laughs> you don't like the things we like. Damn it.
0: Yeah, because they're stupid. Stupid. Yeah. I agree. No, two Great answer. I love those lizards, dinosaurs, whatever you call them. Thanks. Yeah. Um, if you could devote an entire bedroom to one species to build a massive vivarium, what would you keep in design?
1: Oh man, that's hard because unfortunately it wouldn't be the species in which like I really enjoy, because if I'm going to make one room into a giant enclosure, it needs to be something in which is going to inhabit most of that enclosure. So I would I would really love, honestly, to do some type of uh, iguana enclosure, probably some rock iguanas, uh, probably cyclora lewisii or something like that. I would love to have a full room and just see how they work kind of communally.
0: Oh, dude, that would be so sweet. That yeah, and, sweet.
1: and you know that those animals are very smart. They're very interactive, whether it be you or the other animals. I mean, it would be, it would be fun.
0: Yeah, especially if you can raise them up from a young age, get them used to you routine. You can train some behaviors, feeding behaviors, cleaning behaviors, and understandings to make it really easy for you and them, and low stress. Oh, dude, that'd be such a rewarding species to keep in a like a decked out
1: enclosure. I heard that hasn't always been the case for you though, with your well, son, Laura.
0: well, you know, she's a she's a special girl. She's. <laughs> She's every bit of like 12 pounds and she's super bored in the house because it's closed off to people. So she doesn't get the stimulation of people walking through the hallway. So when she sees me, you know, she's just like, ah, like all this energy comes out at once and some days it's good and some days it's not. And, uh, yeah, you just got to really understand like at certain times of the year with iguanas, especially females, when they're cycling or males when they're getting ready to breed, they're just a little more unpredictable and uh, a little more territorial and aggressive. And I think it kind of goes for most species, although I have not worked with all the species, but you know, every species of iguana I've worked with at certain times of the year, they're just a little sketchier. And
1: uh, I see that significantly, even in my colubrids, I mean, specifically kink snakes, but even corn snakes, I see my females during breeding season and after laying and stuff like that. Very, very different animals than when in the fall or getting ready to wind down.
0: Very interesting. Hmm, must be something significant, you know, hormonally for reptiles that go through certain cycles. Because I think they just have
1: that food drive. At least yeah. with the with the colubrids, they're just ready to eat anything.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's definitely like resource based territorial sort of behavior, which seems to lean towards feed. And, and space and resources, you know, allocating. So that does make sense. But that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I've gotten bit from a, a big iguana or something, it's always been like middle of summer or late spring sort of thing.
1: I'm still going to get my rhino, though.
0: You should, dude. Like if you can <laughs> raise it from a baby, you should. It'll be very wonderful animal. It'll be very different than, you know, adopting a 13 year old female that, you know, is just a nut.
1: <laughs> and man like uh probably six years ago or so i got a uh tinosaur which is the honduran uh mm-hmm. spiny tail iguana mm-hmm. and that had started as a really scared animal and turned into an animal in which would climb on my arm and which would eat uh that i would give him food and stuff while he was perched on me and really i built some kind of relationship, even though it was still kind of a sketchy relationship and we were still early in the process. I ended up moving and having to, to rehome him actually to, to Brittany K of, of hope education. And she did some, some education work with him, but um, yeah, building that relationship with an animal like that is just priceless. And I really miss that.
0: Yeah. Something different with lizards compared to snakes for sure.
1: Sorry that I'm elaborating on these clothing questions. No,
0: dude, move. no, you're the guest. It's your <laughs> time to shine. It's perfect. This is everybody's, you know, totally juice on this. I'm sure. And if they're not, they're wrong. Um, yes. You heard them. Yeah. If you ain't first, you'll ask. Um, if you could go back in time to a younger you right before you got into reptiles, what wisdom would you impart upon your younger self?
1: I really wish I was more inquisitive and this is hard because when you're young, you don't really understand everything that's going on and your understanding is very, you know, doesn't have depth to it. So I I really wish I learned more when I was younger and really got into different species. And instead of getting distracted by what most high school kids get distracted by, because, you know, I had a I had a period there where I went without. I had reptiles, but I wasn't interested in reptiles uh, yeah. as much as I should have been. And that was probably high school when I was really focusing more on partying and females and stuff like that. So I really wish I stuck it out a bit more. But, I mean, I think it all kind of worked out. I had the same
0: thing. I definitely had it had the reptile bug best when I was younger and then had a sort of a wax and wane period around that same time and then came back to it big time so
1: and I think I think I'm lucky in which I came back to it when I was 21 and in which like I see so many guys that are just getting back into it like once they're married for a while or you know they're in their mid to late 30s 40s stuff like that so I guess you know we're still we're still very early in the game absolutely I agree
0: If you could pass on one piece of advice to the listeners about keeping snakes and or reptiles, what would it be?
1: Just don't care what anyone else thinks. If you are feeling something in your collection, don't also like don't allow other people's perception. If you don't like a species, move on from that species. If you like a species and no one else likes that species, go with it just, you know, don't pay attention to everything going on around you. Do what makes you happy because that's the only thing that's going to serve you long-term. Those same people that are going to judge you are going to be out of the hobby in
0: you know, a year or two. Yeah, no, that's very true. There's uh it always seems so permanent and intense in the moment, but yeah, if you just do you, you'll just be happy along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was all the closing questions that I had and, uh, I, just you know wanted to thank you for coming on but before we get off was there anything uh that you wanted to put out there any promotions any shout outs any ideas anything you got going on that you wanted to throw out for people
1: yeah i mean i would love for you guys to check out the podcast from the ground up podcast and uh, obviously we have some we have some amazingly popular Episodes. I think you're the second most downloaded episode, you and Andy, in which we had this four hour episode in which we were maybe not the most sober individuals in the nope. room. Nope. But for whatever reason, the, m- <laughs> the second most amount of downloads of any episode. <laughs> I don't know. And we're talking. The, the the first most downloaded episode is Emily and Ed of Snake Discovery, in which they have millions of followers, and it's just hilarious that that episode is the second. It's above Mark O'Shea, um, and <laughs> it, just, it just it just makes me giggle and appreciate the fact that I get to you know talk to you like just this just this conversation right now. I mean, I had such a great time talking to you, and it's so easy talking. And, uh, yeah, man, I really appreciate that. But other than the podcast, portcitypet.com, I have isopods available. I have bioactive substrates, all of that stuff. Um, some core stakes available. So check that out and, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Yeah. All that social media stuff.
0: Sweet dude. So, and is that the best place people can uh, find you is on that various social media?
1: Yeah, I mean, I prefer porcity Pet on Instagram. I prefer messages there because it seems uh, most people reach out there. So,
0: okay, so yeah, that uh, your new sort of rebranded spot, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're in transition, huh?
0: I it's dig a slow it. Slow one. Hey, I dig it. No, that's the best way to do it. it. Gives people time to catch up.
1: Yeah, yeah. Plus, I mean, it gives me time to catch up. I think that's. I think that's really the main part. I, I haven't caught up to myself.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. No, nothing wrong with that. You do you, right?
1: Yeah, and this isn't, uh, you know, I'm not running a corporation. This is a guy who has a couple spare bedrooms in his house, you know? Yeah,
0: with a a couple snakes. Just a couple. Just a few. Never count. Never count.
1: No, you can't.
0: Yeah. No, that's a depressing thing to do. No. No, don't do that. Don't do it. Yeah, that's the last piece of advice. People don't ever count how many snakes you have. If somebody asks, make up a number and just dodge the topic.
1: Yeah. And if you have a significant other that has any qualms, there's going to have to be some decisions. Yeah. You're going to have to draw a line in the sand. You may have to hide some animals too. It's, it's a whole thing. Yeah. It's a lifestyle really. Become
0: a ninja of solitude. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, for me, y'all know where to find me. You can look up the reptile room podcast on Instagram and Facebook. You can find me at Riley's reptiles, Instagram and Facebook. And Without further ado, thank you for joining us tonight. We'll catch you all in a couple of weeks. Thank you for joining us in the reptile room this afternoon, evening, whenever you're listening to this. And thank you for your support, and we'll catch you next time. Peace. Later,
1: gators. Gator. Gator, man! <laughs> yeah, but-